Welcome to a special edition of the Indie Matters podcast. This is a broadcast of our Education Town Hall, moderated by Indie editor John Ralston and reporter Jackie Valley. There were two panels, one with principals and teachers from Clark County and one with students and parents. Further ado, please welcome the editor and founder of the Nevada Independent, John Ralston. Hi, everybody. Uh, I really do appreciate uh, everybody who came out today on a Saturday. Uh, this is—I uh, really do believe this is the most important conversation uh, uh, that this state should be having, and it's long overdue. And I especially want to thank uh, the ten panelists that you're going to meet today, including the five already up on stage who, who uh, took time out of their very, very busy uh, schedules and on a Saturday uh, to, to, to do this. I also, uh, uh, before we get started, want to thank our two sponsors uh, for this, uh, uh, this event, uh, uh, the Elaine Wynn Family Foundation, and uh, my old friend uh, Puna Mather is here, and she is one of the most community-minded people I've ever known, and she has been for quite some time. And, and uh, uh, I, I also want to thank Opportunity 180, which, if some of you don't know, is, is, is a great nonprofit uh, that, 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 that's here. And of course, I want to thank uh, Sierra Vista High School uh, for, for hosting this event uh, in this wonderful uh, auditorium. And uh, uh, finally, last but not least, I want to thank uh, the Indies, Elizabeth Thompson, who you just met, and, and Natalie Keeney, who, who essentially does everything for us for putting this together. I don't. I don't know if all, any of you know how hard it is to put an event together. It takes a lot of planning and logistics, and things always do, uh, go wrong. So uh, I love working with uh, Natalie and Elizabeth. You should give them a round of applause, too, for putting this on. So let me, let me give you a little bit of a backdrop into why we're doing this and why we hope this is the first of many of these kinds uh, of events. If you were watching beforehand, there were slides uh, from, from Sunrise Acres. That's, that's from a, a, a series that we published last year by Jackie Valley, who is sitting uh, there uh, on the end. Um, most people know how much I love my staff and I gush about them all the time, but this truly, this truly was a landmark series. It's no, nothing like this has ever been done uh, before, certainly here uh, in Nevada. And it was all Jackie's idea, from, and, and she executed it from start to finish. She embedded herself at a school, and, and, and she wrote a, a series that really captured, we think, uh, a lot of things that, that, that most people making the laws and most people pontificating about education, a present company not accepted, uh, don't, don't really see a, a, a every day. And she did a wonderful uh, job uh, on that, and, and that's why we're here today, to continue that conversation. You know, I've covered politics for way too long, and every governor says he's the education governor. Every legislator is going to do more for education uh, th th than ever before. And so what happens by the end of uh, almost every session? It's the same old thing. Instead of doing the major surgery they promised, they put Band-Aids uh, uh, on the problem. Uh, the folks you're going to hear from today know this better uh, th 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 than anybody else. And that's why we wanted to have a conversation that we hope that, we hope that legislators eventually will see. Uh, we are going to put this up, as Elizabeth mentioned, on our website. I'm going to send the video to all the legislators, and uh, they can ignore my email at their peril. Hopefully, uh, the, 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 they will look at it. 
Um, we also want you, all of you took the time out of your Saturday to come here to be part of this conversation. You'll see there's a couple of mics, one here and one there, and we're going to save uh, a little time at the end of each panel. We hope that each panel will go somewhere in the neighborhood of an hour, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but we also we want to include your questions, uh, and I emphasize questions, not speeches, not pontifications, that's my department. So uh, I just want to say again that, that I can't think of anyone better to lead this discussion than Jackie Valley, who even beyond stars, stars and Struggles has brought a human dimension to her coverage of education that, that, that is very, very rarely seen. This is, this is the kind of thing where she is going to excel. And although it may be hard to believe that I'm going to keep my mouth totally shut, uh, I am going to let her lead the discussion and I, I will occasionally ask, ask questions uh, to guide these folks. So let's uh, meet our first panel. I'm going I'm to sit down now. And so just so people know, I don't think we have you sitting in the order that I'm going to introduce you, so just raise your hand. By the way, uh, especially with this panel, maybe only with this panel, the principals and, and, and teachers that I'm going to introduce are speaking for themselves. They're not speaking for, for, for the institutions uh, they, they work for. And, Hopefully that will be good enough for their bosses, but I have no idea if it will be or not. All right, first off, uh, I'll try to make these as quick as possible. Uh, Principal Dave Wilson, raise your hand. He started in the, in the Clark County School District as a fifth grade teacher in 91. He then went on to become an elementary assistant principal, principal at all levels, elementary, middle, and high. He served principal at Chaparral in 2011 before uh, moving over to lead El Dorado. High in 2015. He's also president of the Clark County Association of School Administrators and Professional Technical Employees. Also here is Dr. Carrie Buck. <laughs> Dr. Buck spent 18 years in the Clark County School District, six years as principal of CT School Elementary in Henderson, where reform efforts dramatically improved students' reading and math skills. <laughs> Excuse me. Under her leadership, school was named a distinguished Title I school, among other accolades. And for the past five years, Dr. Buck has been growing the Pinecrest Academy of Nevada Charter Network. She currently serves as president of the Pinecrest Foundation, and all Pinecrest Charter schools in Southern Nevada earned a five-star rating uh, last year. It's great to have the charters uh, represented on this panel. So thank you. Jordana McCudden is, is, is here. Uh, she spent, go ahead. She spent 19 years as an educator in CCSD. She taught in both elementary and middle schools and now serves as an instructional coach for first-year teachers. She also has three children who attend the schools in the district. She's a teaching policy fellow with a great group called Teach Plus. So thanks for being here. Um, this is more applause than I've ever gotten in any speech I've ever given. Richard Canopel is here. He teaches architectural design at Advanced Technologies Academy, where he's worked for 24 years. He's the 2019 Nevada Teacher of the Year and a National Teachers Hall of Fame inductee. Uh, Mr. Knobel is also a member of the Nevada STEM Advisory Council and a teaching policy fellow with Teach Plus. You get, you get like a big trophy. You have a big. You don't get a trophy. Okay. Steve Gasco. Last but not least, he teaches sixth and seventh grade science. Go ahead. At Knudsen Middle, he's been teaching in the Clark County School District since 2011. He co-founded Girls Rock Vegas. It's a nonprofit youth rock and roll camp. Before becoming a teacher, he was a patent attorney. Now that's a career path. Right? So, 
That's our panel. I, I, I think we got a great eclectic group of folks here. Uh, as I said, I'm going to let Jackie do most of the questioning, but let me just lead off, and we'll start down, down, down at the end there with just one general question, and I want to start both panels uh, with this question. What is it that frustrates you the most when you read about education in the media, see what legislators are talking about in Carson City? What is missing from that discussion? Most of the discussion doesn't key in on the incredible things that people are doing. Every day I'm in awe but the, with the teachers who are truly miracle workers and doing incredible things with students that come from a diverse background. Uh, that's number one. And number two is when the legislature is actually funding education. I had the opportunity to travel uh, to two different high schools um, in Texas outside of San Antonio. One of them was a, a Title I school. Uh, the other one was a, a normal, um, I'm going to call them a normal high school, different demographics than, than mine. The amount of funding that they received, the class sizes, the opportunities for career and technical education, uh, and, and the whole vibe because of the smaller class sizes, et cetera, was night and day different from what we see here in Nevada. That's what they need to go see what education should be funded uh, at as far as a level and uh, the products that we receive uh, as far as students who are graduating. I would have to say, um, I would have to say the disconnect is frustrating for me between what the public says they want to see with education. We want smaller class sizes. We want teachers to have a good enough wage that it attracts people to being teachers and then the disconnect with what actually happens with the legislature, that somehow in the mix, what the people are saying loud and clear they want is not what ends up passing as law. And so then year after year after year, we continue this cycle of complaining that education isn't going the way we want it to go, identifying where we think it needs to go and the levers to make that happen, and then the laws still don't get changed in the way that's making an effect. Very frustrating. So I'm going to say ditto and ditto, but I think one of the other big issues that I see in education is that as teachers, teacher leaders, um, we are always asked, why don't we have a voice? And one of the things that I've been frustrated with in my career is trying to share that voice. Many times we're asked to come to the table, or sometimes we have to drag a chair to the table. And regardless as to what we do and what we say, a lot of times we're not really listened to. Like we state what needs to happen to make our school successful. We state that we need more funding, we need smaller class sizes, um, that we need to consider things like safety. We need to think about ethnic diversity, we need to think about racial bias in our schools. And there are mandates that come down from the higher ups that are unfunded. Um, more and more things are put on our plates as educators. Steve and I had a conversation previously, so we were talking about how, as classroom and teachers, I took an adolescent psychology class in 1984. I don't remember a whole heck of a lot about that, and I'm not equipped to deal with some of the issues that we see in schools. And so we continue to have all these things put on our plates, and we continue to say that we need help. And sometimes, unfortunately, the help comes at cost. Um, and I feel like a lot of times we're not being listened to. So. I would have to say that the things that 
frustrate me the most are um, ensuring that we need to make sure that every single student, all children, have access to a high-quality, excellent school. And that really needs to be our moral compass in every single decision that we make in education. Also aligning resources to the children with the greatest need. It takes more resources for those, children's, those children, and we need to make sure that policies are enacted to align to that. And I know that there's been work um, and we're anxiously awaiting for the weighted funding formula because it takes more money to educate students with disabilities, students who live in poverty, students who are ELL students. Um, also, teacher pay. Uh, we need to make sure that if it, if it actually comes through, that it does end up in the teacher's paycheck um, and not lost somewhere else. Um, I think broken promises is what's frustrating. We, we hear that we're going to get class size reduction and then we don't. We hear that they want to increase funding and then they don't. Um, we get reports that come out that tell us how much money we're going to need and then we don't get it. And it's just year after year, we, we know what we're supposed to do. The legislature knows what they're supposed to do, and they tell us what they're going to do. I'll, I'll get an email from my newly elected legislator that says, yeah, no, this is, this is what I'm going to do. We're going to start making sure that the room tax actually goes to schools. And, and then it doesn't. <laughs> so it's, it's just years of broken promises that's frustrating. Well, I'm depressed. How about everybody else? No, go ahead. <laughs> Jump right into the money question that seems to be about the end of here. Um, as educators, principals, administrators, um, lawmakers were magically able to unlock funding, more, substantially more funding. Bring the mic closer. Substantially more funding. Yeah, I think so. um, if they were able to unlock that money, where should it go? Where would you like to take it? We hear a lot about school safety and textbooks and class sizes, but you guys see it every day, so. Where would you like to see the extra money spent? I'll kind of start off. I mean, I think Steve kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, it needs to go everywhere. And I, I know that's a lofty aspiration, but we're talking about not being funded for decades. And you can't fix things instantaneously overnight, but it would go a long way if everything was funded to a certain extent. Um, when monies are distributed, once it goes into the DSA, that it actually comes out where it's supposed to go that there's a system of checks and balances so that things like school psychologists that have been funded for a while, that the money actually gets to the school sites, so that when we have students that are having issues, um, that they gain the services that they, that they desperately need. Um, it's kind of a loaded question. You said you weren't gonna give those, but it needs to go everywhere. I mean, it really does. We can't, we can't not fund things for, for years and years and years and think that like a little trickle in the bucket is going to fix things overnight. I mean, it needs to be massive. And I mean, having taught in other states besides the state of Nevada, a reality of it is not going to be a popular idea is that taxes have to increase. I mean, we are at a situation now where <laughs> property taxes, the way that they're slated to increase, are never going to catch up with the deficit. And it's something that we all knew. Um, when when taxes were cut, when we hit the recession. Um, I've been teaching in the school district long enough to remember a time when money was an issue. 
So when I first moved here in 1994 and I started teaching in the Clark County School District, I didn't have everything I wanted, but I had what I needed to do my job, and my class sizes were a reasonable size. Um, and that, that funding disappeared. And we need to fund education if we ever really expect to see true change. I, I think that we need to fund the teacher's salary increases that were promised. That's one thing. Um, teachers who are frustrated because we don't get expected increases are not going to be as effective, we're not going to be as excited, we're not going to be able to inspire kids because we're not feeling inspired. We need to fund class size reduction and that means building new schools. We, we got two new portables at my school, a lot of schools have portable jungles. We need to build new schools. Um, we need to fund all kinds of things, like you're saying. We, we've neglected a lot of stuff, but I think for me the two big ones are funding the salary increases that were promised and funding class size reduction by building schools. So I, I think the focus needs to be, of course, safety, that 100%, um, we need to make sure that every student feels safe in school. Um, that first, because without being safe, you can't learn. Um, human talent definitely needs to be funded. I know in the charter sector, we increase our teachers' pay each year based on the increase, a percentage of the increase in the DSA. So that is just taken right, um, right when we do our budget allocations um, in May. We build that in first, because human talent has to be a focus each year and it can't be, I'm not getting a raise. It needs to be that we have to build that in. Um, oh, the I'm, I'm about to, I was about to actually do, do, do we, We're all familiar with all this jargon. The DSA is a distributive school account, which is the main uh, school account. And, and we're going to occasionally, uh, you know, they, they've been experiencing this for years. They're going to talk in the jargon the same. Jackie and I occasionally do, although she'll sometimes uh, see me take that stuff out of her stories and say no one's going to know what the, what the DSA is. But one other thing, just real quickly before you go on, you mentioned the room tax, and some people may uh, not have understood what that is either. Uh, many years ago, there was a ballot question that was passed. Room tax was supposed to go into the DSA. And again, you talk about broken promises, and, and, and there could have been a lawsuit over this because they clearly broke the law. Legislators needing money elsewhere took that money from uh, the uh, education and put it in, in, in other areas, which I can't imagine all of you in the jobs that you do, how frustrated you are. So, uh, so we don't have her heckling us anymore. Let's, let's try not to talk in jargon all, all, all we can, although I'll try to translate. What, what, what so if I you think to? of the DSA, it's the base level of funding. I believe it's 6500 a little, almost $6,600. So every child that goes to a school in Nevada takes that purse of money as a baseline. And then funding's added, you know, based on categorical funds or class size reduction funds. And so that has to be increased. Every year that has gone up, at least in past history, um, by a little bit. And so the, a percentage of that is put into budgets into for teacher pay or human capital increases. Um, also, I think it's key that curriculum um, be in place, rigorous, high-quality curriculum that 
builds equity across all grade levels. Um, across a second grade level, every single child has access to a high quality, le high lexile level, so reading level, um, quality curriculum. Because without that, it's like the architect trying to build without the foundation. And yes, teacher talent and professional development in our teachers to implement the curriculum, and they can be as creative as possible, but you really do need a solid foundation of curriculum in place to build equity across all of our system. Um, I'd like to add to what Richard was saying about, well, we need money for everything. Absolutely. So we're funded at, I believe, it's 58% of what a study commissioned by the state says we need to be funded at. And what's frustrating, and I agree with that, just everything that's been said here, but what's frustrating as an educator is we are giving teachers and all educators and all the different support staff and everybody who works at schools, including our students who are there, the indication that school is not important because we're so poorly funded. And so when our children, they pay attention to the news, they hear these conversations, they know that schools aren't funded right. How are they supposed to have a buy-in to the education system if they are not fully funded? We are telling them it's not that important. And so it just makes the entire process more difficult when we talk about, well, where should the little bit of money go that we're going to give you this time? Should it be categorical funds or weighted funds? Should it go to class size? Should it go to the 3% increase for teachers? We shouldn't even be having that discussion. We should fully fund education. And until we get to a point where we don't have to have that conversation anymore because we're funding it, none of it really matters. None of it's going to make enough of an impact that we're going to raise ourselves up from being 50th in the country. Um, did, did I mention we're a nonprofit uh, organization? <laughs> uh, ditto to the, all the above. The one thing that, that is, is lacking in, in all the, uh, the conversations is the fact that we are in the business of people, period. I'm sitting here looking at these beautiful students that we have sitting in the audience, and that's our business. But our business is people. You look at where the magic happens, it happens with our support staff, it happens with our teachers, and it happens with our administrators. The harsh reality that I face uh, as a principal of a, uh, a, a school that is in an economically depressed area is that I'm always gonna have six to eight openings. I may not start out with that many, but teachers leave and go other places. Uh, we don't have applicants for jobs. I, I was looking at the fact that they're trying to pass a bill where they'll have librarians in every single school, but currently we only have one person who's sitting in a classroom that's library certified who wants to be a librarian. People are not coming to Clark County School District because we cannot pay them. It is simply economics. You are going to go where you're paid, and currently there are not enough teachers nationwide. We need to be competitive. And it's even creeped into the administrator's ranks. I'm looking at one of uh, a high school principal who I know and I absolutely positively love. Uh, he's going to Utah to be an assistant principal at a high school where he'll be making more money. We're going to continue to see a drain of those high quality individuals to other places until we become competitive. We talk about class sizes, we talk about safety, you know, I've watched class sizes go from 28 to now I have class sizes 
uh, not counting PE, which is 70 uh, to a teacher, but even some of my classes are 45 to 50 to 1. You cannot keep students safe and engaged and learning in the class sizes that we have due to the amount of money that's coming to our school. We're in the business of people. We have to remember that first. Attract, retain, pay those people who are doing incredible jobs in our schools, recognize them for what they're doing, and bring those class sizes down so that we can meet the needs of our students. Do you all get the sense that uh, our class sizes are also driving teachers away just as much as maybe lackluster pay? And can you talk about the experience of leading a classroom with that many kids? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there, there aren't enough chairs in my room sometimes. Um, we start off the year and we've got to juggle chairs around in the school to make sure that kids have a place to sit. There aren't enough places on the counter for students to do labs. Um, yeah, and you can't manage a class of 40 or 50 kids. I mean, that's, and you can't help the kids. I mean, we're in it to help kids. And what do I do, sit down and help a group of three kids while 40 kids are off doing something else? It's, yeah, we, we can win because we want to teach kids. And with class sizes that big, you're just lecturing at them most of the time. And that's, that's not what teachers are in it for. You know, not everybody has to jump in on every question, but, but I'm really interested, uh, Dr. Buck, what, what, are, what are the class sizes like at, 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 at Pinecrest? So again, we get funded for the same as a district school. Uh, we cap ours at 25 in elementary, so K-5, uh, well, K-4, and then 5th through 12th grade, it's about 30. Um, it does not go over 30. So we look at the national research on effectiveness and it not crowd control, which is what you're dealing with, and especially in a science lab. Um, 30, because every child has $6,500. So if you do the math in a class of 45 or 30, I don't know where the extra money is going. And so, um, you know, that's a question I pose back. What do you all think is a reasonable class size? Um, the new state superintendent recently threw out the number of 30. Um, Obviously, there's mandates for the lower grades that would be smaller class sizes, but what would be your magic number? I'll say from a middle school perspective, I felt the difference um, when we were ripping teachers in 2009, when the economy crashed and um, we decided to have larger classrooms um, in lieu of teacher salaries being decreased. And my classroom size over the next couple of years went up and up. So for me, the, the critical line was at about 34 students, anything above 34 students in a middle school classroom, and I had five periods, all of a sudden kids were being able to just kind of fly under the radar. My kids were really quiet and didn't cause a disruption, but maybe they weren't getting good grades. They just knew how to stay quiet and not get noticed. I, those were the kids' names I didn't know until November. Under that, I could get to know everybody well, I could interact with students regularly, but anywhere over 34 students, there were kids that were falling through the cracks. And I think it's flipping the script a little bit, where the students who have the most need in intervention need to have the lower 
lowest class sizes. So a lot of times in our Algebra 1 classes, it's 45, 50 kids. And then in our AP classes, it's 18 and the best teacher. And so we have to be brave enough as school leaders and network leaders and district leaders to flip that so that our best teachers are with those students that need us the most. Our best principals are in those schools that need us the most. Just to go off what Dr. Buck said, um, you know, our best teachers need to be in the schools where the kids need us the most, and they should be compensated because when you work in those at-risk schools, you're getting to school at 4.30 in the morning and you're not leaving until 6 o'clock at night. And there are a lot of hours that are spent doing interventions for those kids that are expected as a component part of your job, but not what your colleagues are doing in other schools. Give us examples. What do you mean by interventions? Um, for the last three summers, I taught Zoom schools. I, I chose that. I, I mean, I feel like I've been very blessed to work at ATEC for 24 years. I work with a magnet population, but that magnet population has changed. We were about 40% white when we first started, 49% white, and now we're 49% Latino. Um, so my, my student population has changed inversely, and I think it goes back to something that Dr. Buck said about having to look at the kids, where the kids come from, and, and what kinds of things. But I mean, the interventions that I had to deal with were language barriers. Um, so I was at Orr Middle School for the last two summers. Um, it's a newcomer school. Many of the students that we were teaching, because we were teaching language acquisition, did not speak English. Um, as a non-formally trained ELL teacher, I was a CTE specialist. So my job was to go in and teach construction, teach robotics, but break it down in such a way that the teacher that was an ELL specialist could teach that technology to kids, get them engaged, get them excited about what they were learning so that they could build language skills. Um, interventions like that, where you're, you're taking the time and you're providing the staffing to provide students with, a, with an engaging learning experience where there are, there are main gains that are being made. Jordana, you work exclusively with first-year teachers, and a lot of times those teachers do end up in some of the most challenging schools. Um, what are you hearing from those teachers on the front lines, and what are you observing, just the daily struggles and successes that they see? I think for them, um, it's just being a first-year teacher is hard, no matter what school you're at, no matter what position, secondary, elementary, it is, teaching is extremely overwhelming. It's a lot of balls in the air at all times, and just learning the job is hard, period. For these teachers, they also know that they're coming in with their students already academically at a deficit. And so they feel the pressure of having to create a sense of urgency in their classroom to get these kids not only to the end of the year where they should be academically, but they know they're starting a grade level, sometimes two or more grade levels behind, and they know that they they're new in it. They're, they're not equipped with all the best classroom management skills. They don't know the curriculum yet. Um, they, they just haven't acquired the best practices. So I, I think, generally speaking, they feel overwhelmed by it. They do the best they can. They talk about coming in early and staying late. Um, they are some of the hardest working teachers. All teachers are hardworking, but they, they just know that there's so much stacked against them, and yet they feel that, that unbelievable sense of they are the outreach for these students and they love these students so much and they try so hard to get them as far as they can with the skills that they have at that time so it's just a lot of pressure for them um, but they they absolutely rise to the occasion and have just done an amazing job this year 
I want to piggyback on that because I had a conversation about that with Dr. Buck before we all started. And you're talking about being first year teachers and, and the idea that you're coming into a job in a town that isn't necessarily inexpensive to live in, um, especially with rent and things soaring. And not only are you dealing with all the things that you have to deal with as a brand new teacher, but you have to deal with all the things of being an adult. And so you're worried about whether or not you're going to be able to feed yourself, whether or not you're going to be able to pay your rent, pay your utilities, pay your car insurance, if you can even afford to have a car. Um, and maybe maybe that four o'clock in the morning that you're getting to school is actually 3.30 because you have to hop on the bus to get to work. And so there's all those other things compounded on top of that that I don't think people look at teachers as having to do. You know, it's like, um, as a teacher for years, you go to the grocery store and it's like you're an alien. If a student sees you because you're, you're not allowed to eat, you know, you're not allowed to go to the movies, you're a teacher and that's what you are. And so that, the picture that's painted of what an educator is and what, it, what an educator really is are two totally different things. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I wanted to ask you more about that. Um, you guys are educators at heart, even if you're a principal or uh, an administrator nowadays. Um, but when you're on the front lines every day and interacting with kids, what are they telling you? I mean, you're doing more than just teaching them academics. I mean, what are they sharing with you that you know, weighs on you as you go home at night? I had a I had a kid tell me the other day he was excited to move into a new house where they had Wi-Fi. He could finally do his homework. It'd been all year. There's homework they have to do. They have to get online to do it. He could finally do his homework because they had Wi-Fi. No buzz. This is good. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, my students at El Dorado High School graduate as a result of the hard work and, and dedication and love that has shown them, not in spite of. You know, I look at the number of, of young ladies that we, we pull out of every year out of prostitution, bringing them back to school. Uh, we look at students that have severe drug abuse issues and or abuse issues that are happening at home. We look at all the things that we're dealing with with our kids and it always makes you feel like you're doing the right thing when they say thank you. Because you are the one who is causing generations to do much better. Not just one kid, but you're impacting generations to come. And so their worries are employment. Uh, looking at uh, what am I going to do now that I'm graduating from high school? Uh, we're in a tight job market where there are not a lot of jobs out there. Where am I going to be working? Am I going to be able to get a summer job? They are looking at day-to-day -day living concerns. But once again, they're grateful for what they're receiving from us because they don't get it anywhere else for a, a large number of them. When I think about this, it takes me back to an experience where I had a, a student uh, come to me. She was in fourth grade, and she's like, Dr. Buck, can my mom clean your house? Because we're gonna have to go back to living in my car, in our car. And so, as a new principal at the time, I was like, you know, what do I do um, with that? And so, um, I think it's being able to wrap your arms around each child, each family, um, you know, and being able to help them problem solve and connect with the right service as we were able to get mom employed and able, you know, 
but in the interim, there needs to be complete wraparound services. You take every single child that walks through your door and make sure that they have everything that they possibly need um, to be successful. And that encompasses the family, too, making sure that they have food backpacks on the weekends, making sure that you know they have ways to pay rent or get off the street. Um, all of that weighs heavy on every educator. Um, and anyway, that's if I remember. <laughs> I think it really is all about the relationship that you build with your students. Um, I know, especially with the students that I work with, um, I spend an exorbitant amount of time because a lot of my students want to go into architecture, engineering, construction fields, and this is the big time of year for us um, where we're applying for scholarships because that's the only way that a lot of these students will be able to afford to go to college. Um, UNLV is, is very benevolent when it comes to funding students' educations, but um, getting those emails of screenshots, knowing that you have a student that applied for a scholarship and they got it. And you, I'm not doing it for the thanks, I'm doing it to pay it forward, to make sure that this child who's been in my class for two years can follow their dreams. And I think that's another side of education that a lot of people don't see. They don't see a lot of the behind the scenes. They don't see the fact that it's April and I'm still writing letters of recommendation for kids. Um, it's about getting to know them to a level where I can talk about some of the things that have been talked about on this stage, about being homeless or living in a car or um, coming from a single parent household and being able to paint a picture so that the people that are providing these opportunities for these young individuals, that they can actually see what they've overcome, the adversity in their lives that, that we don't see. Because after all, kids, especially in high school, hide things really, really well. I wanted to switch gears a little bit. Um, we were talking about wraparound services for these kids and a lot of them need help. Um, that's been a big part of the conversation in terms of school safety. Um, do we need the hardening of the schools in terms of more locks and gates and that type of thing? Or are we better served bringing in more mental health counselors, advisors, um, outside supports? Uh, what do you all think as educators? What would bring the best sense of safety to your schools? I, I think it has to do with supports. I mean, we're kind of joking around about that the kids, the, the big thing where I work now is Uber Eats. Like how they're getting the food in the building, I don't know. Our dean has to take care of that. Um, but, but, but the idea is, I mean, kids are always going to prop doors open for their friends. They, they walk around with this digital tool in their pocket so they can get in touch with anybody at any time. Hey, I'm late to school. Open up the door in the East Wing. And somebody's always going to sneak out to go to the bathroom and do that. And um, th that's an awareness thing. That's an awareness thing with kids and teaching them that. But, but I think the wraparound services and, like I said, about building those relationships, if we had individuals in the building that could actually build those relationships with kids to get that information out of them because like Steve and I were talking a little bit about like free and reduced lunch before all this started. I mean, it's self-reporting. Kids are proud, you know, or because we do have a large number of undocumented students, there are a lot of parents that will not apply for any of it because of the fear that somebody may come to remove them from wherever it is that they're living. And so um, by providing a safe environment where parents, students, can come and talk to somebody that they know cares, that has their best interest at heart, that's going to provide them what they need to get through whatever is going on in their lives, um, I think that's a good starting point. 
very simply, every uh, school needs a social worker. Social worker needs to come with a flagpole. No ifs, ands, or buts. And, and it doesn't matter if you're a wealthy school or it doesn't matter if you're at a school that has economic challenges. Every single school needs a social worker. In this day and age when we're looking at safety issues, we're looking at suicide issues, we're looking at the issues that are taking place at the home, we absolutely positively need that. But, but Jackie, I will tell you that safety is the number one concern, and I'm speaking as, as a high school principal, every time we meet with the superintendent, every time we meet, period, the number one thing that we talk about is not student learning and achievement, but safety. We have major concerns about our kids. We need to figure out how to fund that and what exactly is right. Is it hardening schools? Is it uh, more police officers, et cetera, et cetera? But it needs to start with more social workers. We need to, uh, to tackle it uh, head on. Uh, you look at the statistics even with the, in Clark County School District this year, uh, off of our campuses, off of our campuses, we've had uh, over 20 guns confiscated this year. Uh, if you look at, and that's from students, okay? You bring in the adults into that equation, that number's pushing 35 this year. The numbers are significant. We have to get a handle on it. More police officers, but most importantly, number one in, in Dave Wilson's mind, we need to have a social worker that comes with a flagpole. I would, I would quickly add, um, just more adults per student. So more teachers, smaller class sizes. If I can get to know my students better, then I can be that first contact, somebody that student can trust. More social worker, more counselors, just more adults there to be role models and people who can connect beyond just the academic level with students. Real quick, quickly, can each of you give a sense of what kind of supports you do have at your schools in terms of social workers or counselors or psychologists? If you know. Um, we have three counselors. Um, we have a part-time school psychologist. We don't have a social worker. Oh, how many kids altogether? Uh, 1,300 kids. So we have a social worker in each of our sites as well as a student success advocate. So um, in resolving and building relationships, setting up mentoring programs, that relationship with someone at the school is what keeps kids in school and I believe makes a connection to school. Um, so that can improve attendance because somebody who loves me is at that school. I want to go to that school. I want to be at that school. Um, campus of about 1,100 students, four counselors, two hall monitors, a part-time psych. Um, we share a campus with Veterans Tribute, which has roughly about the same size, no police officer. In 89106, one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in all of Clark County. I'm at five different schools, so I don't know all of their numbers, but I know that um, some either have a social worker or share one with another school. There's a part-time social worker there, and they all have at least one counselor. But I don't know all their direct numbers. El Dorado High School currently has five counselors. There isn't a day that goes by that we don't do a suicide protocol on top of all the other work that we do when it comes to academics and keeping students ready to go. On top of that, I have two contracted social workers. In other words, they're contracted from an outside agency. Uh, they are not a, a part of my regular staff. They aren't people that I've hired. 
Uh, I'm going to give a big shout out to uh, Elaine Wynn and, and uh, her foundation. We have communities and schools. Uh, communities and schools cost me $60,000 out of my Title I budget. Uh, the rest of that money is being matched. Thank you very much. That gives me two more individuals to turn around and work with my kids to give them uh, clothing, food, backpacks, uh, whatever they need, um, those base needs, uh, so that we can, we can keep them coming to school, keep uh, a roof over their head, and keep food in their belly. So those are the supports that we have, but we need more. Another topic we've heard a lot about in the school safety realm is um, violence among students, um, sometimes against staff members or each other at school. Um, there's been a big push up in Carson City this year for restorative justice, um, the behavior modification type model that might in, uh, involve peer support from other students and so forth. Um, but on the front lines every day, I mean, is this a practical approach that you think will work or is it a little too soft? Next panel? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, I'm not an expert on restorative justice, um, but I do feel that the idea of removing a student from school who's been misbehaving hasn't worked. It doesn't work. Um, I don't know how they feel punished when they get three days off. Um, there, there's just, there, there's got to be something better, and I don't know what the better is, but the system that is there now where kids get RPC'd or they get suspended, they're in in-house, this thing, we call them high flyers, right? They're there all the time. Clearly that's not working, so I would be up for trying something new because what is happening isn't helping. And I've been following a lot of the work at Cheyenne High School with the restorative justice program. It is impactful when um, children get to the root, or adults get to the root of that child's problem or student's problem, and they're able to resolve it or get them to articulate what is going on that is causing the problems and why they're acting out, because there's always a reason for it. Um, I think keeping kids in school in some sort of a capacity, whether it be um, in a separate classroom if they're in trouble, um, but they have to be in school because just sending them home, like you said, Jordan, is not the answer. Um, I, I really like the idea of restorative justice. I, I think an apology letter from a student or community service uh, from a student, uh, peer mediation, I think those are, those are great ideas and, and I, I think we should do more of it but I don't want it to be an unfunded mandate either. And I think with the dean's office and with teachers, what ends up happening is you do what's efficient. And with the dean, they've got a line of kids coming out the door. Most of them don't have time to do that kind of restorative justice. Teachers don't have the time to do that kind of restorative justice. So I think we should do it. But we need to really think about how much it's going to cost. Um, how are we going to make sure that we have someone who has the time to really sit down and work through that with the kids? I think some of it also has to do with, like Jordana was saying about the high flyers, the kids that are constantly going through that, that's all they know. And so there needs to be more education about their civic responsibility and to let them understand and know that just because they made a mistake, that doesn't have to define who they are. 
Because I think a lot of times kids get stuck in that endless loop. And because they're a troublemaker, they're always a troublemaker. And so that's kind of their claim to fame as opposed to owning what they did that was wrong, like Steve was saying. Um, maybe not necessarily it was an apology letter, but maybe having to do community service or something like that where they're understanding that there are consequences. Because I think a lot of times the consequences are meaningless, like three days off. Um, and so letting them understand that, that who they are and who they think they are doesn't have to be defined by their actions, that their actions can change, and that the idea of civics um, is something that, that kids really need to learn more about because I think it's something that's absent from schools. Uh, I, I'm going to speak from a principal of a, a school that at times has been extremely violent. Um, you've seen a huge change among most high school principals because in the end, we're the one who makes the, uh, the final judgment as far as what's going to happen to a kid. We have moved from a, a time frame where it was zero tolerance, uh, you dig graffiti on your desk and I'm going to expel you, where now our expulsion numbers are significantly less. So speaking as a former sinner, all right, you know, when I, when I, uh, when I came to El Dorado the very first year, uh, I had 14 guns, 62 knives, and major events happening on my campus. I expelled pretty close to 80 kids. Uh, last year I expelled less than 20, this year I'm at 22. There are times when we need to expel kids. We have to message the fact that no means no. It's not okay to haul off and hit your teacher in the face. It's not okay to go to the next door school that I had this year and one of my students beat up a lady in her 70s. That cannot happen. There is no writing a, a letter of, of apology to that individual that is going to make that right. Yet at the same time, for, for, uh, for example, first-time drug infractions, we now have the harbor where we can send a kid. I had a kid with uh, weed the other day for the you know, first-time offender, sent him to the harbor. Next day, he's back in my school. We're making sure that they have the help they need, where before we may have been looking at suspension or expulsion. We have put in behavior programs like myself where I have a strong individual working with kids. Instead of suspending you and sending you home for a vacation, I'm putting you in to work with him where he tries to retrain you and reteach you as far as what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable and why school is important and it's important to graduate from high school. So we've seen significant numbers go up and when it comes to graduation rates, we've also seen the number of expulsions go down significantly. But what that looks like is different from every single school because the challenges that we face are different. I'd also like to applaud the, the district for putting in a program that's uh, called the Lighthouse. I had a student last year that tried to stab me and kill me in my own school. That school is, uh, that student is now no longer a part of Clark County School District, the regular school system. He's now in a virtual school. I'm grateful for that because we have some students that do not belong in day-to-day -day contact with teachers and students. It is the harsh reality. That number is small, but we need alternatives for our kids. So once again, reiterate, we need to look at how we're dealing with our kids. But our, uh, the second thing is, is that we need to message out that no means no. You cannot bring a gun to school. You cannot bring a knife to school. You cannot assault our employees. Those things are no. You cannot cause substantial bodily injury to other students. Uh, I even looked at some of the things that come up in my neighboring schools in the last month. We don't put that out in the media, but I, I had a neighboring school that uh, took uh, literally, uh, a pound of marijuana, for those of you who doesn't know, the size of a grapefruit. They took two single, one pound uh, uh, packages of marijuana, several pieces of loose leaves, uh, all kinds of, uh, the major issue that we have in high schools 
isn't loose leaf marijuana, but it's the uh, THC vaporizer pens. No smell, no nothing. Go to the bathroom, get high, nobody knows other than the glassy eyes, right? We have those major distributors on our campus that we're taking and removing. Now the question is, when should restorative justice kick in, and when do we turn around and say, if you are a major drug trafficker to other students, we need to have consequences. So we need to find a balance between the two, because we need to keep our schools safe, specifically, first and foremost. Yet at the same time, we need to shut down the number of uh, expulsions, suspensions, to keep kids from going into the uh, that school-to-prison pipeline uh, that we've had in place in the past. Well, let me just well, let me just jump in here to say that it's about two o'clock, and we're going to try to wrap this panel up in ten minutes or so, probably. And so, if there are any questions out there, please uh, uh, start lining up uh, uh, behind these mics. If, if there are questions, we'll, we'll we'll keep talking. But if we see anybody come up to the mic, we'll we'll, we'll be happy to uh, take take your questions. Jackie, what haven't we covered yet? One thing I wanted to ask uh, real quickly was two nights ago I was covering a, uh, an event with former Senator Harry Reid talking about anti-Semitism and the rise of it. At the same time, there was a discussion at the school board about some racial incidents at uh, Arborview High School. Do you get the sense that there's um, more hatred happening inside the schools? And if so, you know, what can be done about it? I don't, I don't know that there's more hatred. I think that it's more acceptable to express that. And I think that is some of what we're seeing, that it's now in some realms okay to voice the polarization that is going on. And we're just seeing a lot of evidence of that, unfortunately. Um, my first five years teaching, I, I never saw a swastika in my school. Uh, past two years, um, I see him more often. Um, there was a student at the beginning of the year in sixth grade who was throwing Nazi salutes down the hallway. Um, I think it's a really small number of kids who feel empowered now. But yeah, there are things I'm seeing now that I didn't used to see. Okay, um, since I'm very happy to see that there are people lining up on both sides, and I want to get in as many questions as we can. Try to keep your questions as brief as possible, and, and we'll try to get uh, as many of these folks to answer uh, as we can. Let's start over, over there. Go ahead. Hi, everybody. My name's Krista. I'm a teacher um, with an online charter school. Um, I've taught with the um, school district as well for several years. And my question is for the high school principals. Um, I am curious to know why everybody looks the other way when um, you guys mandate students to take more classes than they need to graduate for Nevada statute, okay, in order to get your funding. I think it puts a lot of undue pressure on a lot of our students. And I'm just wondering why people look the other way, because I, I can see you guys all care about students, just like all educators do and all people in this bill. Um, we look the other way on so many different accounts, class sizes and our pay and et cetera, et cetera. Um, why, why would we do that? Why would we put those undue pressure you know, on, on these kids? Okay. okay, I saw you nodding your head there, Principal Wilson. Hi, my name's Dave. I'm a Burgo. I'm a recovering playaholic. Hi. So uh, 21st century uh, diploma is what the school board has asked in the past that we, we 
we program our students. So that is, is a mandate we have. We have to have a specific program of, of, of study for all students. So that number of credits that are required for that are greater than what is actually required for a standard diploma. So the 21st uh, century was something, once again, that's been mandated by previous school boards that we operate under for kids because that is the expectation. When they get to me, because once again, when I stepped into uh, Chaparral High School, graduation rate was 32%. We raised that to 80%. When I uh, stepped into El Dorado High School, the graduation rate was 64%. We sat at 92% last year. We actually sit down with those students and say, are you truly one of those kids that needs a 21st century diploma, or are you a kid that needs a standard diploma? And then we modify the coursework for them. But that's what I do individually. But to understand that the expectation for the additional credits is an expectation that has come from the school board saying, this is what we want your students to achieve. Thank you for that answer. But I, I feel that's unacceptable because what you're doing is you're making students who only need half a credit actually take four credits for the year in order for them to get the funding for the school. So you're burdening the, the students in order for the school to get their funding, and that's the bad students across the board. And so your answer, uh, while I understand there, you're, you're telling me there's different types of diplomas, is that what I'm understanding? Uh, yes, but, but the other portion of that too is, is a mandate from the State Department of Education stating that uh, we cannot give open periods to students unless they meet specific criteria at the same time. So there's several different criteria that we have to operate under as far as whether or not a student who actually only needs two classes to graduate and having them come for two periods, we, we can't do that by the time they reach their senior year. Unless they I don't want the, the principal to have to be subjected to this. We are going to lock him in a room afterwards and you can go, and you can go visit him after the panel. I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Gianna Plegenkuhl. I'm a product of the Clark County School District. I have two sons that have gone through the Clark County School District, and I'm also a 27-year uh, teacher with the Clark County School District. So um, we all know the issues, and I appreciate you bringing up and, and giving the information to everyone. Um, but again, we're tired of the mandates. We know where this is all coming from, from the state down. So I just have a question if you guys have suggestions that what we all can do um, to actually make a difference in educational funding. I'm tired for 30 years now plus that something hasn't been done. So what can we do right now? Please contact every legislator over and over. Have your friends do it. Have parents, children do it. Everybody should be contacting their legislators and expressing that intense desire to fund schools. But if nobody's talking about taxes and nobody's talking about where this money, we all know we need more money, but nobody's talking about where that money's gonna come from. That's what my question is. I know, I do all those things, and I think a lot of people do, but again, we're how many days into the legislative session and they're not talking about money. Nobody's but, uh, got the solution. So piggyback on what Jordana said too, that's also important, so like these, these form emails are useless. Like any legislator that you talk to will tell you that they don't have enough time to do that. I mean, a meaningful letter that's written. And, and the bottom line is, I mean, as an educator, you know that there's not a lot that we're gonna do to change it, but I believe we've testified together before, yes, okay? You know the importance of showing up in a room because as an educator, if you don't show up in a room where there's a working session or it's time to testify, it doesn't look like it's important to the legislature. 
and to, to kind of put something out because I know that there's board members in the room and there's probably also union people, they need to provide us with time as educators because ironically, most of the time when all this stuff is scheduled is in the middle of our work day. So we either need to take a personal day or a sick day in order to go and actually use our teacher voice that we're being told that we need. I'm really glad that there's so many questions here, but I want to get to all of them. I really do, since we took the time to do this town hall, I want to get to all of them. So uh, I, I do want to continue. Real, real quickly, though, uh, the, the point uh, that Jordana made is, is the most important one. But, but legislators only really respond to one thing, and it's not their, ca their campaign contributors. That's what most people think. If you can organize in their districts and not write form letters and contact them, and mass, they will respond, I guarantee it. The one thing that legislators fear more than anything else is not being legislators anymore. So that's the only way to get their attention is through grassroots organizing. It's hard, it's really very hard, but it literally is the only way to do it. Go ahead, ma'am. Thank you. Um, my name's Dr. Mary Alver. I've started something called the Education Innovation Collaborative to try to get to solve these incredibly difficult, entrenched problems in our education system. And one of the things I heard Dr. Buck say that I'm, I would like to hear a little bit more about is being able to have small class sizes of 30 and equity of curriculum, a robust curriculum that every student gets. How do you do that, Dr. Buck, with a charter school that's actually getting a portion of the funding from the DSA uh, account. What's so the magic there? I'm really going to blow your mind here, too, because charters not only, um, we don't get facility funding either, so we pay, uh, we pay our rent or mortgage or bond um, out of the distributed money also. So that same money that goes to every public school. So it's about $1,281 per student that we get less because of that. And here's why. It's real flexible and our budgets are real lean um, because we have to focus on human capital first, curriculum, well, we have to pay the rent, the lights, we have our entire budgets in front of building leaders, and they have to make the decisions. But it really comes down to it's very lean. You know, I, I mean, central office is one or two people doing the majority of the state reporting and everything, ELL services and um, everything else, all the different hats. I, I know you, I know you want to have a dialogue, and I don't mean to cut anybody off, but hopefully these folks will stick around for a little while afterwards and you can have a dialogue with them. But I want everybody to feel that they got their question uh, asked. And so if we can just have one person uh, respond, I think, so we can get all these questions in because there are some parents and, and students who are waiting to be uh, on, on the next panel. So go ahead. Yeah, I have a question. And um, I'm a 15-year veteran teacher in the district, five years in another state. I work for Department of Defense Schools. And um, my question for you is, we're sitting here talking about um, teaching and funding education, and we're talking about human beings here. We're talking about our children in our community, very vulnerable children. So I would like to know that we're having this conversation about educating the general population. What about that special needs population, if you have experience with it? Are they getting properly funded? It's a great question. Thank you for asking. Who wants, who wants to take that one? 
the answer is always going to be no, because um, we can be doing more. I, I have uh, 12 self-contained programs in my school as well as uh, uh, regular um, cooperative consultative type programs, uh, uh, remedial math programs, remedial reading programs. Uh, once again, uh, everything could be funded at, at a better level than it currently is. Uh, what, one of my concerns is, is the amount of funding that's coming from, from the state. If you look at CCSD's actual budget, and you ask how much money is going out of the general fund to, uh, to augment or to cover that difference between federal and state funding, uh, those numbers are significant. So yes, there is money that needs to increase for special needs students. Great. Go ahead. Hi there. My name is Jenny Gentleman. Um, I am a volunteer for Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, but I'm not really necessarily asking this in that capacity. I'm also a parent. Um, I've been spending a lot of time recently with Roxanne McCoy, who is the president of the NAACP, um, you know, starting to learn and understand uh, more about racial tensions. Uh, so I have two questions. Do you think that we are genuinely addressing um, the racial climate in the way that we should be, and let me just say this, and, I, and I'm not pointing any fingers in, in any way, but I do notice that not a single person on the panel is black or brown, and a lot of, just a lot that we're hearing, especially at the school board meetings, is that the African American community and the Hispanic community does not feel represented. We talk about equity, are we focusing genuinely enough? Is this a sleeping giant? Because it seems to be a lot of schools now are getting to a point. Second part of that question is safety. A lot of the issues that we face in schools are issues that are spilling into schools from the community. We keep talking that we have to, to manage it and handle it on our budget. Our, are we demanding enough help from the community, from other partners, from law enforcement, from other people? This is not just a school issue. So two kind of big questions. But Who wants to take those easy ones? So I'll, I'll address the first okay. question because like, I've just actually gone through some training. And I mean, part of it is asking the question that you just asked. We have to have those difficult questions with ethnicities to get them into our schools. And, like, we actually have a couple people in our fellowship um, that are phenomenal classroom teachers that are actually thinking about leaving. And so um, my data might be a little bit off, but statistically, the number of non-white teachers that are actually going into the classroom is higher than it ever has been. But the issue that we have is that they're going to all the at-risk schools. So they are getting the same supports that all the other teachers that are brand new teachers are getting, and it's not enough. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. I mean, you can't get anybody to step into this role if you're not going to provide them with the supports they need to be successful in their job. And so it's, it has nothing, it really isn't about funding. It's about actually doing things like Jordana does, like provide mentoring to new teachers. Because if that's where all of our... No, we're not. We're not. We're, no, we're not. We're not doing it. But I mean, but everybody knows that it's a national problem, and it, and it is something that there is work that's being done. But until we solve the problem of of supporting those brand new teachers, which is where a lot of these ethnicities are going, um, we're not going to solve that problem. I mean, okay. right now, I think 
the average new teacher lasts about five years, regardless as the color of their skin. And so if that's where the majority of our black, Latino, um, new teachers are going and they're not surviving, not getting those supports, it's going to be the same thing as if it was a white teacher. Um, five, five years is the state figure or is that national? Five years like a national figure. National. National okay, figure, yeah. let, let, let's move on because we are short on time. Um, my name is Paul Kleeman and I'm a teacher in the Clark County School District at the Del Sol Academy of the Performing Arts. And my question is, in the last legislative session we passed a bill on, um, sorry, weighted funding. Wouldn't it behoove us to change the funding formula in the distributive school account to the weights as opposed to having categoricals? One of the big ones is the Zoom schools. We have lots of schools that are Zoom schools. But my school, which is down the street um, over by the airport, has an equally high population of Hispanic students. We do not receive Zoom funding. We have lots of native, sorry, first, wrong word, sorry. Lots of uh, new to country students that need these supports. I'm just curious what your panel thinks on this. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I've, I've often said they created this cash system uh, by the way that they do it. The new governor says he's against categoricals and he wants to maybe just use uh, the weighted uh, funding. A any strong feelings on that? I'd like both, because for funding, um, I definitely think that when there's categorical funds, you really need to then every year go back and make sure that the money has been used well. So you're checking to make sure that there is student growth that was expected. That being said, I actually think that with the change of the funding formula, that's probably going to happen. I think it's going to go towards weighted funding without getting rid of the categorical funding. That's there. I think Zoom has shown its success, and I, I'll be surprised if it goes somewhere. I hope it doesn't go anywhere. Um, but I think weighted funding, um, so that the you don't know if the weighted funding means that the money would follow the students. Categorical is a school gets money because it hits these certain metrics, and that money stays at that school. But then you've got schools like the right. question was just asked. Um, where there are students that have needs, but because they're not at a school that hit that threshold of getting categorical funds, they don't get any support. Weighted funding would fix that by making sure that every school gets the amount of money they need for all the special populations, for ELL, special ed, and so forth. But I don't think they're going to get rid of, I hope they don't get rid of the okay. categoricals that are there. All right, so I see there's, I think there are two over here and two over there, and we're going to have to cut it off uh, after that because we do need to get to the next panel, which I'm really excited about, and those students are just about to come out of their seats. They're so eager to tell you what's really going on and how they don't know what they're talking about up here. Go ahead. Okay. There has been a lot of talk about safety, and that discussion always seems to come out of the, a lot of what I hear coming out of it is a lot of extreme, like the worst case scenarios, which of course we want to prevent. But my kids and teachers within the district have had to deal with my son went three days without running water at his school because a water main broke. The classrooms are regularly over 90 degrees. There are classrooms where there are not aides to handle kids that need special needs who then have meltdowns and start throwing desks, and the teachers have no option but to remove all of the kids. You have volunteer badges that have wiped out, completely wiped out the parent volunteer population in school. You don't have additional aides, you don't have the counselors. All of these safety things that are being put in place, kids are being told, don't go outside when you hear a fire alarm, and teachers are telling the kids, because there might be a gunman. And so now I have to explain to my kids that a fire alarm doesn't mean that they're under assault. Are these safety measures actually making kids safer, or are they just ticking a box that's something that you can present and say, we have these procedures, it looks good, we're aware of this problem, but is it 
actually solving a problem, or is it? Are they generally creating more, but they just are put on more to look like something is okay. being done? Okay. Who wants to take that one? Uh, I'll, I'll take that one if that's okay. Um, by the way, thank you. Say, like I said, safety is our number one issue that we're concerned about. You have to understand the Clark County School District does not have the money to fix its schools. Uh, when we're sitting with classrooms with uh, 80 degree temperatures, I remember when I was principal of Chaparral, we had one of our boilers go out. We spent three weeks with an average temperature of 52 degrees in the classroom. We need money to fix our infrastructure to keep our schools safe. When it comes to what do we do about safety, that's the conundrum. Um, I can tell you that I hear a lot of words, as Dave Wilson individual speaking, all right, but I haven't seen actions yet. In other words, I haven't seen anybody come into El Dorado High School and say, how do we secure 82 entrances to your schools, okay? Dave Wilson, I turned around and had all of my students this year begin to wear student IDs. We're checking in with IDs. We're beginning to take attendance with our IDs because I have so many non-students come on my campus to sell drugs or do other improper things. You know, a year and a half ago, I had a 20-year-old come in with two loaded firearms specifically to execute my police officer. We have to figure out how do we control people coming on our campus. It's a big question. Uh, and luckily, we have people that are trying to address it, but I think we need to not just speak to it. We need to be very formal in our communication and see action, not words. Okay. okay. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, hi, my name is Megan Delaney. I used to be an education reporter. I'm not anymore. Um, I wanted to play off Dr. Buck's idea of flipping the script in schools. Um, how do you actually take that into action and bring it to scale? How does Mr. Wilson at his school convince his best math teacher to stop teaching AP Cal and teach Algebra 1? How does that happen in every Clark County school district school and does it? Sorry, yes, that is for you, Dr. Buck. So it's being able to make, I guess, tough decisions and convince your teachers that this is going to make the greatest difference because it is. Um, so I think about it's about decisions around a, the students and not necessarily the adults, which is difficult. Um, it's being able to be real with your staff um, to make sure and communicate the reasons why we need you, our strongest teachers, to help build the foundation in math. Because the AP kids, they're gonna be, like, they're gonna be fine. They're gonna be, they're gonna do all right. It's the ones that are struggling that need the most help. They need the best teachers. Um, some other things, just in scheduling, looking at the different scheduling, your, um, and this is more elementary school based, but um, it's moving prep time. So your fourth and fifth grade students need um, that morning time, that rigid morning time. Um, to be more productive, right? Because that's how your Nevada school performance framework, you're rated. So it's having those tough discussions and being able to uh, have the courage to make your decisions around what is best inevitably for the students. Because, and I know, I mean, we always think middle, middle school is rough. 
But when they go to ninth grade and they come in and most of them aren't proficient, then what? So that whole ninth grade year needs intervention with your best, your best teachers. Um, I like to say high expectations for children are free. It's really that structure that you put in place, those structures that process it, the process, and then you align everyone and synergize everyone around this vision to meet that student achievement, which is really why we're all here. So there's a myriad of different things that society throws at educators, but inevitably we have to make students successful and achieve. And that has to be our goal, getting all these supports in place, but our goal is to get every student successful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, go ahead. Two more questions and we're done. Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Cyrus Hojati. I have one comment and I have one question. One thing I think is impacting our rankings and performance is uh, really the kinds of students and parents that are in the school district. Uh, if you have a lot of parents that come from less wealthy countries who are low skilled, and many of them take ELL courses, that's going to have an impact on your performance. So my real question is, speaking of performance, I don't really believe that performance is a measure of how the school and the teachers are doing. I believe it's because students and parents are very obedient. I switched high schools. I went to an Orange County high school, top 5%. My grades plummeted. The teachers were really not helpful. And so I really think that the reason the schools perform very well is because their parents and their students are very obedient, which is something you don't see here. And more importantly, I don't believe that test scores is a true measure of education. I believe the true measure of education is what does the student becomes in the real world. Because just because the student gets a high SAT score, high GPA, does not mean really they're learning. Because if they don't retain that information and contribute to the real world, then what's the point? So was there a question there or just a rant? Well, uh, do you think that we should measure education based on what does the student become in the real world and what they contribute to society? Because I think test scores should not be the primary case. I think it's pretty misleading. Quick answer here. So when you look at the Nevada School Performance Framework, 65% of that is growth. That really is a blessing and it's a great equalizer because it's where this, where you get the student coming through the door and then where you as a teacher are able, able to move them. And there has to be some sort of an outcome, um, whether it be college, career, ACT, to demonstrate success. And I do believe that Nevada has one of the most equalizing systems. It's 65% of our rubric is on growth. That's amazing, especially for this, the students that sit in schools that, um, you know, are low poverty in that. It can be where they're at and where they're going. 25% is that of that is proficiency. So if you think of that as a line in which you high jump over and trying to get as many kids as proficient. But for 65% of that to be growth, that's amazing. Okay, thank you. Young lady. My name is Jordana, and my question is, why did you choose to be a teacher? 
Why did you choose to be a teacher? What a great question. I'll start. Um, Jordana. My name's Jordana, so I'm going to start. <laughs> the same name. Sweetheart, I wanted to be a teacher because of girls like you. Um, my very first teacher was my father. And a lot of times I write essays about things. I mean, obviously, to be the teacher of the year, you have to write about a lot of things. But I'm surprised my father didn't kill me when I was younger. But, but he did teach me to love learning. And because he taught me to love learning, I wanted to impart that on children. It's a great question, though, Jordana. Thank you. Our, I see you snuck in there. and I said I was going to cut it off. One more quick question. Go ahead. Hi, um, thank you for being here. My name is Lourdes. I have a question about classroom sizes. Um, Dr. I, first, I have to, well, Dr. Buck. I have a question in regards to charter school. Um, in a charter school, um, there's a process to be accepted, correct? Yes, or, there's a blind lottery. Okay, so when it comes to public schools, you a public school does not have the choice to accept or deny a student. So when it comes to talk about classroom sizes, your classroom sizes are 30 and you know maybe a little bit over or lower. But in a public school, you cannot deny a kid to come into a public school. So you get more children throughout the year. So how can we talk about equal classroom sizes when one can choose and the other one has no choice? So what do you say about that, and how can we get legislation to really understand that fact, that public schools have no choice, they cannot deny a student the acceptance of being in the classroom? Okay, great note to end on, the evils of charters. Kind of, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in, in charter schools, and there's many on our waiting list, and that's why um, it's important that we're opening up schools in, in these areas to meet the need of uh, of these schools that are, you know, bursting in capacity. And so opening these schools in areas where your school, your neighborhood school is at its highest capacity, first off, and in areas where it's the greatest demographic need. I, I understand that, but when we already have public schools, what can we do? So principal uh, from El Dorado, as a principal that accepts students year-round, year and teachers that accept students year-round. What is your opinion on that? I would like to know that. And the charter demographic, I mean, we've... Not just, I'm sorry, not just, not just the charter, but all we've schools. grown 17,000 seats in the past three years, and that is increasing, which should help with the load, right? Because students come, and we want to make sure that they have a seat. So, um, uh, uh, we've already run late, and actually I'm glad we have to, we had some great questions. I'm glad the audience is participating, but most of all, I want to thank all of you. You each brought a different kind of perspective to this discussion, a discussion that's not heard uh, very often. Let's give them a round of applause for taking all the time. So, we are, we're going to take just a brief break, um, no more than five minutes, I promise, and we're going to change out. Uh, the panels, and, and we'll be back with the students and some parents. So please stick around. Yes? Hello. All right, we're going to get started here with our second panel, and we're thrilled uh, to have the perspective 
uh, from both students and parents to add uh, to the mix. I'm going to quickly introduce uh, the, these folks, and then we will launch into what we're going to. We may have to cut this panel short because they 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 are going to kick us out of here by four. So, uh, uh, but I will I, I will try to leave time for questions again. Thanks to all of you who stuck around. We really do appreciate it for this important conversation. So let me introduce the folks who are here right now. Rebecca Garcia, you can just like raise your hand and say, that's me. Lives in East Las Vegas, has four children ranging in age from 7 to 24. Her oldest graduated from Las Vegas Academy 2013. Her three youngest, then Sandy Miller and O'Callaghan uh, schools, both of which are Title I magnet schools. She's involved in two school organizational teams, just began her term as president-elect for the Nevada PTA. She also serves as administrator for the CCSD Parents Group on Facebook and apparently does not sleep, from what I can tell. <laughs> Julie Vigil has lived in Las Vegas for almost 20 years, has two kids, yeah, clap for them too, has two kids in the Clark County School District. Son is in high school, daughter's in middle school. She's volunteered at her children's schools and for the first time this year is on the school organizational team at her daughter's school. She's a member of Hope for Nevada, that's a parent-led organization that advocates for equitable and ad adequate education funding at the state level. So let's give her a round of applause. <laughs> Sandy Cordy, she's a senior at Del Sol High School. Go ahead, go ahead. And she apparently brought her fan club, where she's president of the Student Ambassador Club and the Drama Club. She's also a member of the National Honor Society, and I can tell you that she is prepared to dominate this panel from everything I can see. Alexander Bergrinsky, where are you? Right there. Also a senior at Del Sol, where he's a tri-varsity athlete and captain of the swim team. He's attended Clark County Schools since kindergarten. Thanks, thanks to you for coming as well. Michael Brody. He's a senior at Sierra Vista High School where he leads the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Club. He also participates in a peer mentorship program at Sierra Vista. All right, this is a great group. Really appreciate you all, you all coming. As I said, I'm going to turn this over to Jackie in a second, but I want to just start off this panel with one question for all of you to answer, uh, and, and then Jackie will launch into some specific questions. I'm going to start uh, at the younger end here, and, and we'll go this way. What jumped out at you from what was said at the first panel, for whatever reason, what jumped out at you? I think a lot of what was discussed was important. Specifically, the mental health jumped out to me, and also the programs we have to discipline kids. So we have like in-house and all of those where we are suspending kids and putting them on hold for certain things to discipline them, which I understand it is needed to discipline children, and help them understand what is right from wrong, but it's hard for them to understand what is right from wrong when they don't even know what they did wrong, and they're put in this room, isolated from everybody else, with a teacher who tells them, you can do this, you can do this, you can't do this, and they're not understanding why they're in that room. So that's what jumped out to me. Okay. The one part I really liked was the student supporter, the social worker. Um, because I feel like a lot of kids don't try as hard as they think that they could because they're just like struggling at home. And if, if I feel like that if there was this extra, you know, balance like the social worker could like, you know, provide, I feel like the students would try harder and like get better grades and like overall make the school a better place. Okay. Uh, I would say that 
the thing that stood out to me the most is uh, the struggles that teachers and other administrators go through. Um, you know, these are our role models each and every day, uh, and the fact that they endure so much and they have so many problems on a day-to-day -day basis uh, just makes me feel for them. Uh, it makes me want to appreciate my teachers and my administrators more and uh, just try to see what I can do to be a light to them uh, moving forward. Great. Um, first, that we have amazing teachers and administrators um, and that they do so much for our kids. But for me, the biggest thing is the same frustration. It feels like a broken record. We know we need more funding. We know the funding's not adequate. We know that there's holes that need to be filled, and we just have the same conversations on repeat because it's not being addressed by our legislators. I'm going to echo everything that Rebecca just said. Um, Bring the mic a little bit closer, Julie. Yeah, go ahead. Everything that Rebecca just said is absolutely true. Um, the thing that stuck out to me was we seem to be going over the same topics all the time. It's a different group of players that will be speaking about it, but it's the same topics. And when, when the one woman asked, what do we need to do that's different, that we haven't done before, and Jordana said, contact your legislators, that is, like, I don't know what else we can do except, you know, storm the castle at this point. Okay, Jackie. And to, piggyback off, to piggyback off that part, I wanted to ask the parents in this room, um, have you been asked to donate money to your schools, or your children's schools, to either save programs or save a teacher? And how does that make you feel? Um, right now, I would say this school year, no, I have not. Um, my daughter switched from on open enrollment, which is a great school choice that we have in CCSD. Um, but we went from, from a little bit of a more well-off, if you will, demographic middle school to one that is a Title I middle school. Um, I know the school that she left, they are currently um, doing a huge fundraiser to make up for a grant, the Nevada 21 Ready grant that they lost. And they are looking for big money from, from everyone to, be, to pitch in and help so that the students can have one-to-one -one devices again and that sort of thing. Um, the school that my daughter is at now, they don't have a one-to-one -one device um, policy or program. So that's not anything that we see there. There is uh, fundraising going on on campuses on both the middle school and high school campus, um, but not to that great extent. So. Uh, there is a huge difference, and I think your question was leading more towards the larger type of uh, financial commitments. And so um, I have experienced that in, in past elementary schools as well. Um, we're always fundraising, uh, but my kids attend in East Las Vegas. The idea of trying to fundraise for a teaching position would not be economically feasible. Although my kids do attend magnets, um, we pull from East Las Vegas due to the busing requirements. Um, and so we do fundraise all the time, but we're fundraising for, sometimes it may be considered an extra, but a lot of times it's things like extra disposables for science projects. Um, you know, all those things, once little kids touch them, you can't use them again. <laughs> so there's, there's things like that. And then also, 
Um, I sit on the SOT and we're looking at next year our class sizes raising because our star rating increased. So depending on what the legislature decides on, um, we're potentially going to lose some of our classroom reduction allocations. Um, and so there's that discussion of how do we fill that? What's going to happen with that? So I, I don't sit at schools where we could afford to raise money to fill a teacher position, but money is a discussion almost every day I'm in the buildings. Thank you. So I want to turn to the students now. Um, all three of you are seniors about to graduate in a few weeks from now, so congratulations, first of all. Um, looking back on your schooling career, um, can you talk a little bit about the highlights and then the lowlights? The highlights, specifically for me, is having the opportunities to do what we do in the magnet program and getting to do new things, but that also comes with low light. Because we have to understand, we can't have this if we want this, and we have to do this if we want that, and it's just always a constant choice for us. And I feel like we aren't put first in a place where it, it's, going to, it's going to affect us for entire lives. Our education is very important. We're at school sometimes even until seven with our extracurriculars, but it's always a choice of this or that. At our school, we had around 25 students in the theater program make it to internationals. Over half of us probably won't go because we can't afford it. So yes, we're achieving, but... So some of my highlights are just Basically, being very grateful for all the great teachers that I have and like being like taught so many great things. Two of them are over there. Uh, and some of my lowlights are probably learning how like hard it's been on every single school in this district. Because the way I see it is Clark County School District is the fifth largest district in the entire uh, United States and we're the most underfunded district. And I feel like the Nevada plan itself, the 1967 one, is just an, it's just a formula. Every kid is just a number. It only goes towards equality, not equity, which I think equity is like the biggest part in this whole entire thing. Uh, some of my highlights throughout my high school uh, career so far is uh, definitely the relationships and the connections I've uh, built with others. Uh, being able to look at my principal, Dr. Anslow, and have a genuine conversation with him about my career path and stuff like that really means a lot to me as well as some of my other teachers. Uh, doing things like the Sun Youth Forum, uh, this like we're doing right now, uh, it's just awesome to meet up with a bunch of other bright students. Probably the lowlights would just be seeing some of those same peers that I hung out with a lot during middle school fall down the wrong path during high school, uh, whether they're getting into drugs or they're just not taking their schoolwork seriously. Um, that's probably one of the lowlights because you know I'm, they mean a lot to me, and I want to be a leader and, and help influence them along their journey. But uh, just seeing them go down the wrong path is definitely a low light for me. Alexander, you mentioned sometimes feeling like a number. Can you elaborate on that? And what instances make you feel like a number? Well, the Nevada plan itself. <laughs> it's uh, each student is around seven thousand dollars, and we all know that. So I go by this analogy: like there's like these three people tall, medium, short, right? And they can't see over the wall. You give each person the same box, but the short person will not be able to see over the wall still. So 
I go by the standard that every single person should get the thing that they need. And by just being a number on a piece of paper, like I just said before, is only that box. We heard a lot in the first panel about class sizes and how many are way too big. Is it hard or has it been hard in the past for you all to forge connections with your teachers as a result of that? Uh, some students believe that their teachers don't care. It's, it, they, they believe that their teachers don't care, they don't invest themselves, but you know, I see a, on a day-to-day -day basis that our teachers are here for a reason. You know, they want to support students, they want the best for them, but with these uh, extremely large class sizes, they're not fully able to do that to the level they would want to themselves. Um, you know, with increased class sizes, they're not able to get that one-on-one -on -one training that they need, and they just feel lost sometimes. So, yeah. Let me just follow up on that real quickly, because what you said is interesting. Are you saying because the classes are so large that mm -hmm. even if the teachers are trying hard, that some of the students will just feel alienated from them because they can't get enough they can't get enough time with them, and so they think that translates into them not caring about them? Ask every single student in the Clark County School District, and they'll say yes to that. Wow. Definitely. Wow. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's fine. So I have the opportunity to be in smaller classes, which are AP classes, and we've d the other panel discussed this. But I've also had a class I've grown up with since my freshman year, and I've seen it get larger and larger by the minute. We started with around 15 students, and that class was my favorite class. I could go from, to my teacher for anything. If I needed advice, he would help me, anything. He was a mentor to me, not just a teacher. Teachers are more than just, okay, I'm here to lecture you, and this is what you should write down. That's not what we go to teachers for. But then the class started growing, and numbers started crunching, and I'd hear my teachers talking, we need this many more students to keep our program going. And I asked many students in that particular class, and they feel as if they've lost that connection with that teacher, or as if they don't get the same learning experience they had when they first had their freshman year. Parents, uh, Rebecca and Julie, I know you're very involved, probably more so than a lot of other parents in the district. Do you have a keen sense of what's happening in your children's schools? What frustrates you about what's happening inside the schools? And conversely, what are they doing right that should be replicated elsewhere? That's right. Um, what frustrates me is the fact that kids and teachers are worrying about money. Uh, honestly, I'm still really good friends with several of my teachers from high school. They still are people that I turn to. Um, I don't ever, I did, I grew up in Washington State where there were levies, and so I actually went out and campaigned with the school board to try to get people to pass the levies because I was a debater, and so they tapped us to do that. Um, but that isn't where the focus of what teachers should be caring about. That isn't the focus of what students should be worried about. And so for me as a parent, that's one of the things that's made me step up is to try to alleviate some of that concern. Um, I also think with the challenges of class size and all these other things, for me, I have kids that don't fit into the box. I have kids that have learning challenges and that are also gifted. And when we have such low funding, such high class sizes, teachers who are stressed because their workload is so high, 
um, it's really hard to accommodate students with different learning patterns. We keep saying that there's a box and somehow people are supposed to fit into that and then test the over-testing, in my opinion. I'm not a fan of the amount of testing that we do, especially of our elementary age students. Um, it just, it makes it very hard to look at each child as an individual, as somebody who has different, like these three, they have different strengths and talents. And when we have so many things putting external pressure on the system, it's really hard for those kids to be the center of it. And that's when I think we have the greatest success as an education system. And so that's what's really encouraged me to step up and be a loud voice um, as a parent is because I see how it impacts my kids. I see how they are seen as a test score. They are seen as a number, not because that's what a teacher wants, but because that's what the system is forcing onto them. What have you seen that frustrates you in your children's schools? And conversely, what's working right that should be replicated elsewhere? There's a lot that is right in schools. And I think, unfortunately, it gets overshadowed by um, safety concerns, kids who are, are not conforming to, to what they should be doing. Um, the, the money situation, the funding, the lack of funding, the, the fact that, like you said, you have to make choices. We want this, but we're gonna have to give something else up. I think throughout the school district, there are so many different programs and individual adults, teachers, administrators, support staff, who are rising above every single day, and they may not get the attention um, or the kudos that they deserve. And ultimately, the, the worst part that I see in every school, whether it's my own kids or other schools that I visit, is just the lack of funding that is there. And I know it sounds like a broken record, but that is the base for everything. And without having adequate resources to fund programs, after-school activities, teachers, salaries, benefits, what have you, everything starts to crumble. I'm glad you mentioned testing. That was on my list of questions last time for the first panel that we didn't get to. So I'd like to hear from both the students and the parents. Uh, students, do you feel like you're over-tested? Um, if so, why? Um, and also, what types of curriculum do you get the most enjoyment out of? This is a test. <laughs> <laughs> I personally don't think we're over-tested just because there has to be a way where we're measured and there's not always a way, a way where we can communicate with people and let them know where we need help. I know like ACT stuff is a little bit more rigorous and that goes into college and college is a monopoly, it's a business, but I think, yeah. But I think testing is important so people know where we are at but it's really the impact of testing that bothers me. I enjoy being involved at school. That's the main part I enjoy, and making it more than just a place where I am educated, whatever that is supposed to mean, coursework. Repeat that question just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like you're being subjected to too many tests? Um, All right. 
Um, so, the ACT, um, I believe, is a good way to measure where your intelligence is at, but I do not think it should be one of the very, very main deciding factors on which college you go to and how much scholarships you should receive. Because I feel like every person's hard work, like if I have like a weighted 4.0 GPA and I have like a 3.7, it shows I'm a hard worker and it shows that I'm willing to do the work in order to get where I need to go. I do not want one test to decide whether I get enough funding, you know? And one part like I enjoy is like learning from my teachers so that I could get better because the way I do is I like I establish like a good connection with my teacher and then through that it becomes more of a better experience rather than just the oh I need to do it just to do it. I think that we get tested at, you know enough I don't feel like it's too much uh, as long as we prepare ourselves when we, we like she said we have to have a measure of what we're learning uh, we have to they have to be able to measure you know our progression and stuff like that and so you know as far as testing goes I think it's great as it is right now um, I'm not too sure about the education as far as like uh, you know kindergarten through you know fifth grade and stuff like that how their testing goes but as far as high school goes middle school went it was it was fairly well um, what I enjoy uh, as far as classes goes classes that I can actually apply in my life um, you know on a, on a serious level like government I take government this year seniors take government and it's awesome to learn about our government and how uh, you know things we actually see on the news we can actually understand it nowadays um, and, and apply it to our lives you know things like pre-calculus and, and stuff like that stuff that I won't even need to apply after this year sometimes just you know frustrates me that I'm, I'm sitting in a class you know when why do I need to know this formula are you gonna ask me this formula two years from now you know so I, you know, I understand it's all about problem solving and stuff like that but Definitely the classes that I can apply to my life on a day-to-day -day basis, like government, personal finance, stuff like that, so things I'm going to move forward, like business, marketing, stuff like that is going to be amazing, and uh, I enjoy it right now. Interestingly enough, what their answers are is reflective of my frustration with testing. Um, they, each of these seniors take less testing, standardized testing, than my seven-year-old does. Um, between MAPS, SBAC, and then building chosen additional assessments of AIMS-Web and STAR testing for ARL, or for AR. Um, tradition, right now, most of our elementary students are being subjected to regular, some form of standardized progress monitoring testing, whether it's formative or summative, significantly more than our high school students are. And the stress and the negative impact on their desire to be engaged in learning as a lifelong pursuit that impacts everything, not just a test store, to me is something that really needs to be looked at as to where we want our children to, to move forward from and what we want a six and seven and eight year old to see school as. Do we want them to see it as a place that they go take tests or as a place where they're excited because, hey, I figured out that when I do this, this happens. And I got to ask this question, and my teacher showed me this. Um, and so for me, that's the problem. We're testing our youngest children too much. I completely agree again. Um, the, the elementary to eighth grade set definitely gets tested so much more than our high schoolers. Um, some of it's good. You know, we, we definitely need benchmarks. We need to be able to see the progress that's, that's happening. Um, 
we need to, to find problem areas to circle back and, and make sure that they're learning those areas. Um, but the stress and for teachers having to teach to the test um, is another big issue that um, I think the early K through eight years don't need to be as burdened with that kind of standardized testing. I also wanted to talk to Sandy about her experience as an English language learner student. Um, I'll let her tell you her story, but I think she was born here and then moved away and then came back at around age 12. Um, so coming back and having to really get to know the English language again, uh, what did you experience in school that was either you know, helpful or a little bit troublesome? So right now, because I am comfortable with this language, I think testing is a good idea. But if you would have asked me a while back, I would have freaked out, gotten nervous. It was really challenging. Um, at the age of 12, I moved here from Syria, Damascus. And going into the English language learners and having to take the test was really daunting on me. They put me a grade behind from where I was supposed to be. And I think you mentioned that, that they put students behind all the time, two grades to a grade behind. And it was really frustrating because I felt like nobody believed that I could do or be part of the education system or I was capable. And it took me a while because I had the resources and teachers to go to. And by middle school, I did get back on track. But a lot of students don't do that. My younger brother's still affected by this, and he is a grade behind. And he has a negative outlook on learning because he believes that nobody's actually on his side. Jackie, let me just jump in here because I, I want to talk about something that came up in the first panel and, and, and that somewhat surprised me. And it's also come up with, uh, uh, with at least a couple of, of the students, and that is the issue. You called it mental health. You, you, you mentioned that you have a lot of friends who have developed problems, uh, uh, drug problems, other kinds of issues. When we asked uh, the first panel about what they, what, what, what they would want to add, they all, they all talked about a social worker or, or, or and, and only having a, a psychologist half-time. When I went to school a long time ago, we didn't have to worry about a lot of the things that, that I, there was no such thing as cyberbullying. There was no chance that anyone was going to bring a weapon on campus. How much of, of what's going on in schools now is affected by the different kinds of stresses and the inability of schools to have to have the kinds of people who could help kids get, get through it. I, I want to hear from all of you on that because I really think that that came out the first panel. It was really actually surprising to me that 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 they all felt that way. And when you think about it, though, that that'll affect test scores. That'll that, that'll affect future achievement. It'll affect the high school dropout rate. It'll affect a lot of different things. How much of a problem is this? Jump in. I want to hear from y'all. Well, you're thinking. I can jump in. You can jump in. Um, I would just say as a parent with children who've had some mental health challenges, getting services in Clark County is incredibly challenging. Um, and the training that's provided to school staff is limited. And again, it all goes back to time, energy, money. Um, and so I know I'm not in their shoes, and I think their perspective is really important in that, but I can tell you as a parent in Clark County, mental health services are desperately needed, and when you go to a school to get the support that you need for your child, 
um, a lot of times they don't know where to direct you either has been my experience. And so I, I think that there's a lot of need for that. I think our school counselor at my kids' elementary school is phenomenal, but she has 700 kids to track. We've had some really challenging events in families this year at, at my kids' elementary school, and in one week she told me there was a, a, a natural cause death, a suicide of a parent, a four CPS reports and something else like in a 10-day period that she was managing and this is at a, a high-performing school um, so the idea that this is only happening in certain parts of the valley the idea that it's only happening at certain schools is false and I think all schools need additional support because schools are really the hub of a community and so if we put those resources there I think it flows out and helps Mental health is really important, and it should be to everybody, because that's really the determining factor for some students. Do I go to school or not? I, I don't feel comfortable going to school today. And for some students, their home is unstable, and they don't want to be there either. So if they're going to school where they don't have support, they are not going to be encouraged to do anything. And a lot of students fall in this realm where, yes, okay, you can go to your counselors and go get help, but counselors have a lot to do themselves. I've gone to my counselor and I want to discuss certain issues and she's doing her job and counseling and taking conferences with parents about people being on graduation, to, on track for graduation. And it's difficult being a student and going to someone and wanting help and not knowing what to do yourself and them asking you, how can I help you? What can I do? And I think if we had more people that were trained specifically for this and that could sit there and be like, here, here's my hand, this is my name, I'm here to help you, it would solve a lot of issues. A lot of people would come to school with a smile on their face, want to interact with students instead of isolating themselves and letting their minds just consume them and their education. We just need to be proactive rather than reactive. You know, so many times people go to counselors after they've tried to commit suicide, you know, after it's gone to the lowest of lows. Uh, not enough times are, are students, you know, friends helping out, you know, their peers on, hey, uh, he's been having this thought lately, you need to check in with him. That's just as far as teenagers go, that seems low. You know, that seems like, you know, everyone's cool, everyone has their own opinions, everyone's strong, you don't need help, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, bringing that out of students on, on just seeking help no matter what is important. And just, again, being proactive, doing it before something happens. You know, that we need to stop being reactive when stuff happens, uh, trying to help things when, when, when the wound's already open, uh, and just start doing things beforehand and helping everyone that we can possible and not be ashamed of it, but just know that it's, uh, it's, it's meaningful and it's genuine. One thing that, like, I cannot stress enough is, like, you're, if you're going alone through, like, a certain time period and you only have one person helping you, what happens when that one person's gone, right? I believe we need to build, like, a bigger community when it comes to helping people and through their struggles in life because while you could be struggling in school at home, it could be way worse. Like, there could be so many things happening at home that you can't even, like, focus in school. So I feel like if we build, like, a bigger community about, like, this whole, like, 
helping at home, helping at school, I feel like we'll see like a dramatic increase in like, you know, a, a better you know, graduation rate. Not only that, but better mental health performance. And when you all talk about mental health among students, uh, what are you talking about with your friends and peers? I mean, is it a lot of anxiety or depression or just stress, all of the above? All of the above. I have friends and they tell me things that I don't know how to help them with. And I don't know who to direct them to to get the help either. A lot of students are depressed, some self-harm. And it's a lot to handle on your own as a student. And it's also a lot to handle as a friend of someone and not knowing what to do. Um, see, the things I get from my friends are like, they'll tell me like really personal stuff that like I didn't even know about them because they look so cheery on the outside and then once they like text you like at 1 a.m. or something they're like really sad and they're present like they just want to talk to somebody like I feel like if we're all there for each other and sometimes you just need to let a person talk and they'll feel better like that's just how it is and sometimes if they're really down deep in the deep end that you yourself, the person who got the news should go and try and tell somebody about it somebody that's in like a higher level than you are so that we can help them so that they don't harm themselves anymore. Alexander, one thing that really struck me is when I met you and Del Sol in your teacher's class the other day, you were talking about swim team and your commute to practice every day. I think what's lost on a lot of people is how busy students can be, especially in high school if they're involved in after school activities as well. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about what your daily Monday through Friday looks like and <laughs> how you structure not only social things, but homework and all these extracurriculars. So uh, I do work also on top of uh, you know going to school. I work around about 30 hours to maybe even 35 hours a week uh, on top of school. So it is a lot, uh, just a balancing act, as well as attending church on Wednesdays and Sundays and stuff like that. So um, you know, yeah, it's a lot. You know, just being able to go to school, stay focused. Uh, projects outside of school as well as you know doing FCA every single Tuesday here at, at the school uh, doing the peer mentorship program reaching out to students below me uh, grade wise and, and doing stuff like that it's just a lot you know just being able to talk to my mom uh, you know about you know how to be better but it's just you know the, the amount of work that students have even though I work outside of school there's students that are here like she said till seven o'clock doing extracurricular type things and so students are Overloaded, you know, they got so much work on their, uh, you know, on their hands, and it's all about balancing act and, and resources that can help them probably time management. So I wake up 6:30 in the morning, right? And that's worse. That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I go to school. I do all this. I so the way Del Sol works is there's eight periods in his block schedule. So there's an A day, B day. You have four classes, and each one's an hour and 20 minutes, right? So Every single day, I have homework. It doesn't matter. I always have homework. But I also have my sports to deal with, and I also have to go home and eat. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> basically, I'm doing all my school extracurriculars and all that all the way up until 6.30. I get home. I'm tired from swim practice because uh, he makes us do sprints. Um, <laughs> so I get home at 6.30, right? I have to eat. I have to take a shower. I have to drink a lot of water because I'm dying. <laughs> and then I have to do my homework. And by the time I get to my homework, it's like 8.30 or 9 o'clock. And since I have four blocks, 
each day, regardless. One of them's weight training, but still. Um, I have all these assignments to do, and by the time I go to bed, it's around like 12, 12.30, maybe one, if, you know, it gets really bad. And I have like five hours of sleep, and I have to deal with all that every single day, Monday through Friday. And it's just a bunch of emotional stress that I have to deal with. And so I feel like if we really had you know, these people, that community we could talk to, it can just make us all feel better. Because like I said, talking could just really relieve the pressure. Can I hop in and add a sure. comment that's kind of random to that? I do not understand why our high schoolers go to school at the crack of dawn when our tiny babies. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, my middle schooler catches the bus at 6.23 a.m. Um, his siblings, who don't go to school at elementary until 8.50, are naturally up that time. They're awake and ready to go, and they don't go to school for two and a half hours. So, um, and same thing, most of the high, everybody, all of schools have a little bit different schedule, but, and I've seen this happening nationwide, but there hasn't been a lot of conversation here in Clark County about it yet. It just seems like we have some of these start times skewed, and we aren't targeting the kids at the right time frame for their age. You're, you're nodding that you agree. Have either of you raised this issue with, with school district officials, with, any, with anybody? And I'm wondering what the reaction is you get. So um, everything in the school district for start times ties back to transportation and money. Um, we, my, at one of my kids' school, we had a, our start time change mid-year, which is incredibly disruptive to families. We had some families who had to unenroll their children because they could no longer do it. Um, and it was entirely due to a new school opened and it triggered a transportation ricochet and they found out they couldn't make it work. And when we, we advocated and advocated, the price tag was over a million dollars to get our start time back to what we wanted it. And so what was the answer going to be? No. On that note, we've heard a lot about transportation being a huge issue this year, not enough bus drivers. Have you guys um, experienced the effects of that, and can you talk about it? Yes, I have. <laughs> um, there have been times where my bus driver has forgotten to pick us up, and all but three or four students will walk back home and assume they're our excuse for the day, but of course we are not. And we're just waiting out there in the cold for our bus driver with no warning. Recently, we've gotten emails somehow that our bus will be 30 to 20 minutes late, but it's never 30 to 20 minutes late. It's at least always double that. And after school, when I go home, because I have extracurricular activities, the bus is sometimes an hour late. And it's because we ask her, is there a reason what is going on? She's like, I had to pick up other, other kids before you guys. How do you make up the classwork you miss? I mean, is that up to you guys to like, go deal with your teachers to see what you missed? Yeah, it, it is entirely up to us. Sometimes I walk into the class and they're in the middle of a timed writing, which is an assessment that I have to be present at school for to do. And I have to find the time out of my day, which I already don't have time because I'm staying up doing homework and doing clubs to make up the work. So. It's kind of hard to get some of your missing assignments because after school, especially near the end of the quarter when everybody needs the assignments, uh, those classrooms are always full. And it's so hard to get the teacher attention that you need. That's like where the whole huge, like, you know, the classroom sizes comes in and like the 40 kids per class, you know? It's just really hard to like really 
collaborate with your teacher when he's trying to collaborate with, I don't know, like 150 other kids? Uh, going back to transportation a little bit, uh, in my first hour of class, there's at least three or four kids that come in every single day with a late bus pass. They're late every single day. Um, I have friends that, hey man, why weren't you at school today? Oh, my bus didn't show up. So I just went home. I just went back to sleep. Um, that happens so, regularly, you're saying? Oh yeah, regularly. Almost at least every single, every single week, no doubt. Wow. Yeah. So there's kids that are every single day late to school. It could be 20 minutes, could be you know, 30 minutes. And then there's always kids that are like, oh, I just didn't go to school because my bus was, it was 30 minutes past time, so I just went home. So yeah, transportation is bad. A uh, lot of late bus passes that go out every single day inside of Sierra Vista at least. And parents, have you dealt with this too? And does it add some extra stress to your day? Um, my kids don't actually take the bus to school. I have made myself a chauffeur as one of my many hats to where my one daughter is on open enrollment, so there is no transportation afforded to her um, to go to the school that she's at, the middle school that she's at. So I have to find transportation for her. And um, when we do take the bus um, for the other, my other student, um, it's never on a regular schedule like it should be. Um, I think one of the perfect examples is my son um, was chosen to be in a really cool program with Amazon. They were the only state school in the state of Nevada that um, he got to work directly with coders at Amazon and learn Python and all these things. And the capstone to it was going to Zappos and meeting with some of their developers for a field trip. Yeah, that field trip didn't happen because the bus wasn't available on the same day. Um, it has been rescheduled, um, but these kids were so excited, did a 12-week program, were all excited to go on a really cool learning opportunity, and there wasn't a bus available that day because of the shortages. So it impacts, whether it's missed class time or extra learning opportunities, that the business community has stepped up and provided for things when the transportation's not there. And it all goes back to money. Our bus drivers, I have a, my brother-in-law was a bus driver who left the district because at $15 an hour on a split shift, guaranteed about five or six hours, and then you're getting a good chunk of money taken out on insurance, it's not a sustainable job. It's just not. And so it's, I wish I had an answer to it, but it directly impacts student learning when we can't afford to pay bus drivers. And you three have told me separately you're all college bound in the fall after you graduate. But is there something you feel like you were maybe missing um, in your K through 12 experience that makes you a little bit Worried about entering the college realm? Money. <laughs> <laughs> Scholarships and that type of thing? Yeah. Well, you, you all know where you're going? Yeah. Tell everybody where you're going just so they know. I'll be going to UNLV. <laughs> uh, UNLV for civil engineering. University of Nevada, Reno. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though, because you're all obviously very high achievers, or, or you wouldn't be here at this town hall, handpicked by us. Um, <clears throat> and, and you all decided to, to, to stay in Nevada to, to, to go to school. Uh, is there a reason for that? Is it financial? Is it because you decided that these were the best schools for you? I'm curious about that. Honestly, I just want to, like, I don't want to leave this, this, like, I don't want to leave this, like, district and this whole entire Las Vegas and Nevada on a bad note. 
you know? I, I want to go through this education and go through it and see progr progression as I go through my college years. That's the reason I stayed. Uh, I feel like I owe, I owe Nevada something, you know? So, you know, they provide me the education. Granted, even if it wasn't the top-notch education that I, you know, I probably desired, I still got education. Uh, so I want to work my tail off to be able to provide for Nevada, you know, through business and stuff like that. And, you know, just bringing Nevada back on the map. All right. Do you want to add? Um, it feels kind of like unfinished business. It's like where you've invested so much and you still want to see something move. It's like it, you're almost there but not quite. And that's kind of what's holding me back from leaving. Nevada benefits from all of them staying here. I'm just yes. going to say that. <laughs> Rebecca, and I wanted to ask you, you've already had one child graduate from Las Vegas Academy. Do you feel like the education system adequately, adequately prepared him or her for either college or vocational school or whatever career a child went? Um, she's finishing up a degree to become a science teacher. So, uh, <laughs> she's in Oregon, she wanted a different climate. Um, but, I, I do, but she had a really interesting trajectory because she went to six different schools while she was in Clark County. Um, and so she went from Bailey Middle School in the Northeast to Las Vegas Academy. Um, and I can tell you that transition was almost harder for her than the transition to college. Um, Bailey is a traditional one-star school um, and really struggles in a lot of ways. Um, and so even coming from all advanced classes there, going to LVA, which is a really premier magnet school here, she, she had an amazing opportunity there. I couldn't have paid for her to have a better education than going to Las Vegas Academy. Um, but it showed, for me, I think it really opened my eyes to the inequity in the district. Um, zip code matters. Um, we, what opportunities our kids have and what they are able to learn is directly impacted, unfortunately, by the educational school that they're going to. And we have some phenomenal schools in Clark County, but we also have some schools that have struggled for years. Um, and that impacted her, um, making that jump from that type, from a one-star school to a five-star school, it was a big jump. Um, but then when she went to college, it wasn't quite as hard because LVA did prepare her so well. And at least two of yours are in magnet schools right now, right? Uh, so all of mine are in magnet right now. Um, my kids have gone to zoned schools, but I do live in Northeast Las Vegas. I live in the east side. And so for, for me, most of the time, the choice to get my kids in the best education for them has been to put them in a magnet school. And that's been my choice because the zoned schools, um, I am zoned for El Dorado, that is my, um, but those schools are traditionally one and two star schools to which my children are zoned for. Have you been on wait lists or has it been pretty seamless for your children to get in? Um, both has happened. Um, we've had both wait lists and um, the beauty of magnets is sibling preference. So for the elementary level, once you get your oldest child in, it helps get the others in. Now the Del Sol kids, if you're in the magnet program, you had to audition and do other things. So um, that was a, when my daughter auditioned for Las Vegas Academy, that was a whole other thing because she had to audition, so it was a much different process. Mm -hmm. 
I want to totally change it up now and talk about technology. <laughs> you guys in particular have grown up just fingertips away from the internet. Um, in the classroom, how much of a help is it to have that technology? Or do you view it as a hindrance sometimes? I view it as a, as a huge help, honestly. Like, in science classes, we go on the internet, we search up these specific definitions, we write them down on a piece of paper, and we do some science experiments on the computers too, which can also help if we don't have like, like certain necessary funding, like so we can do like, like physical like experiments in our own classrooms. I feel like in that type of way, if it helps either save money or it helps either you know, the teacher grade stuff easier so that it can be, how do I say, equal grading for all those students and then get them like on time, I think that technology is a benefit. <laughs> I agree, technology is a benefit and I have learned a lot by exposing myself to that technology, but when I first came here, it was actually one of the first times I've ever touched a computer, and it was very foreign to me. So I think for children growing up, like the younger age children, they should offer some sort of help into them learning how to use the technology, because for me, that was very intimidating. Now it is really helpful because I can find information, do research, find answers for myself, and be able to answer things by myself. But I do think it is important to still have the textbooks. Let me just jump in here and just say that we only have a few minutes left uh, in this panel. If there are any other questions out there in the audience, again, I want you to participate. Please come up to these mics if anybody has a question for these amazing kids and, and, and parents uh, here. But let me, let me just continue the discussion um, and, and, and talk about something that I probably should have asked the last panel, but you, you will be instructive here too, and that's the whole issue of parental involvement. Obviously, you're very, very involved, both of you parents. I'm wondering how involved uh, uh, your parents uh, have been uh, in, in your education, calling the schools and finding out what's going on, hectoring them. Uh, do you know, do you have friends, do you have friends who, who have not been as involved, had their parents not be as involved, and you thought that they should have been and, and that affected their performance in school. What, what about that topic, both students and kids? But I see we're getting questions again, so make your answers quick. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I've had friends before, uh, even now, whose parents aren't so involved in their life, you know, so as far as education goes. And it, and it really hurts me because they're the ones who typically struggle in school. They're not the ones that really excel all the time, uh, but they're the ones who struggle. And so it frustrates me all the time because their parents are the ones, you know, criticizing them on getting and, and, and you know getting down on them because they're struggling. When really, what is their parents doing for them? You know, what type of moral support are they giving them? And so, you know, I see it all the time. Thankfully, I'm able to have you know a beautiful mother uh, who's able to support me morally each and every single day. Um, thanks, mom. But uh, uh, yeah, but you know, as far as the people that you know struggle. It's always usually something related to you know their their childhood or even like their current uh, situation at home. I come from a single parent household, so my father does everything. He's my mother. He brings every. He's my father. 
So it's hard for him to get as involved as he would like, especially when English is not his first language and he doesn't know where to go to help. So I think we need more connection with the parents, like maybe an email even from the schools, like, hey, we're having this, or let's have a board just for parents at our school to get some input. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, my mom is a very wonderful person, but she does not know how like USA academics work <laughs> because she got her bachelor's degree in Georgia like the Republic of Georgia, near the Black Sea in Europe, all that. Yeah, she was a theater major, and she said over there, oh, let me do it in her voice, over there I did not have to do any uh, <laughs> math or extracurriculars. All I had to do was theater, and everybody else gave me A. I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, that's good for you, Mom. But, <laughs> but she tries to be involved as she can. It's just that it's very hard to, you know, go to college and basically be the sort of first generation in American like, you know, culture when it comes to like doing college and all that hard stuff. Because she says, Alex, I don't know what to do, so you do it. So I was like, all right, fine, I guess. Um, I think it's a huge challenge. We do see the impact of parental involvement having a direct impact on student success. Um, interestingly enough, research has shown it's equal to a $1,000 investment in a child's education. So the return on investment of parental engagement is huge. Um, I think there's two different things. They touched on it extensively, that we, our community has a lot of single parent family homes. We have a lot of immigrant households and mix that with being the fifth largest school district in the country and it is insanely overwhelming as a parent to figure out even how to interact with CCSD. And I don't think that's necessarily always something that CCSD did wrong, it's just the nature of this huge of an organization. Go ahead. Sneak one thing in there. Um, I don't know your mom, but <laughs> <laughs> I bet you that Things have just changed a lot, whether it's another country or, or this country, just the amount of expectations on our students is incredible. And I, I can relate um, and remember when I was this age and my schooling was nothing like what it is today. Um, we expect so much from our students and our teachers. Um, Okay, so here's what we're going to do, and, and, and I hate to do this. I see there are two people over here and four over there. They are literally going to kick us out of here very, very soon. So keep your questions. I'm going to get to all six questions, uh, but uh, just one person answer and keep it relatively brief. No speeches. No speeches. <laughs> just ask questions, and I'll try to let everyone participate. Uh, my name is Paul Kleeman. I taught at Southern Middle School, and I was on the school SOT. This is to the parents in general. Do you feel the SOT model is actually helping you make decisions and changing what happens at your school? Full disclosure, my wife's also in her school's SOT, so that's it. So I've been an SOT member since it, the law was created, um, and I chair both SOTs that I. So tell, tell people what that is in case. So this SOT is the school organizational team. Um, no is the basic answer that I would give. I think school, so school organizational teams have the ability to benefit schools, and at both schools I sit on, I think we have 
handled things that have been helpful. Um, when you talk about the strategic budget, because it is so lean and inadequate, there are not a lot of choices to be made. Um, once we fund teacher positions, which at both schools that I sit on is our number one priority, is adults in the building. Once we fund that, um, there's really not much of a discussion afterwards. So from a sense of the SOT having an ability to impact is limited because the funding that's available is so small. Additionally, we are in advisory capacity. So it entirely relies on the principal being open and willing to listen. Um, I admin CCSD Parents, which has 4,000 members. I can tell you the experience of parents across the district with principals listening has been varied. Um, there's some that do it well, and there's some that feel completely um, disregarded. So I, I, and the reality too, when we talk about parent engagement, parents have an opportunity to sit on the SOT. Um, in most schools, we're begging for parents. Um, we're, I, at both schools that I sit on, um, we've never had a support staff member fill the rep position. Um, even if they've been elected, they turn it down. Um, so the model in theory versus practice is very different, and I don't think it's been, I don't think it's successful. I think in some schools it's been beneficial, but as a whole, no. Okay. Go ahead. I don't have a child in the school system but I was married to a school teacher from Cleveland, okay? You have a situation here where you have the largest school district, I mean, it takes literally three hours to drive from one end of the school district to the other. You have decisions that are being made in a, a town that is farther from Las Vegas than New York is from Cleveland, okay? Uh, do you think, and a lot, and you addressed parent involvement, how that, because they have no way, nowhere to go. Do you think there should be moves to de to decentralize management or break up the school system? Would that help? Or what are your feelings toward that? We're currently um, in about the second year of our reorganization of the school district here. Uh, it started two legislative sessions ago and has been slowly rolling out. Um, they originally wanted to break up the school district because we are the fifth largest and it's too big and unwieldy and all of that um, due to civil rights issues and money um, and other things. It was not feasible to break it up to slice the pie in any way, shape, or form, so they decentralized it. And that's what the reorganization that we are currently living in is all about right now. And the SOT, the school organization team, was one of the key components to the reorganization. Um, is it effective? I think in theory it should be effective, um, but it's, it's not as effective as it could be or should be. And there's bills, there's a bill right now, I forget the number, um, going through that is taking away some of the teeth, even what little teeth that the SOTs had. Um, so. You can find the bill on the Nevada Independence site, I'm sure. Go ahead. Great question. I'm going to take this. 
Um, there is a program that one of our HOPE board members, I don't know if she's out in the audience right now, um, that she started, and it's a student legislative, uh, student working group, and they're learning all about how to interact and communicate with legislators and your elected officials. So as a high schooler, you are able to find out more about that and get involved in that. It will be an ongoing program. Um, it was just written up in the Nevada Indy, and it's a fabulous program that teaches, um, teaches students how to reach out and talk about the issues that matter to them with their uh, elected officials and the legislators who are over the committees um, that, that talk about those things and decide those things. It's, it doesn't seem like a very glamorous answer, and I think that was part of what was going on earlier with the first panel, is it's not a glamorous answer, but right now that is what we have to do, and that is constantly let our elected officials and lawmakers know what it is that you want and what you're lacking and what we need. Um, just reach out by phone, by email, by letter, but best of all, come and and submit testimony and speak to them directly. And from what I understand, that's an effort that's going to continue in the interim after the session ends. So yes, students can stay involved even though the session isn't yeah. happening. Go ahead, sir. Good afternoon, Zano Kuda Lim, a proud graduate of Clark County School District. Real quick ditto, the legislative working group. Um, Anna Sliding, um, who's been hosting it along with Leo Benavides from the uh, Clark County School District. Great people. Um, I sat in um, uh, first two of their meetings, wasn't able to make it to the one this week, but it's just great and I definitely encourage you to look into participating if you can. Uh, my question is for the students. Earlier you mentioned, I'm go over this way, earlier you mentioned um, the importance of mental health and I recall when I was a student in the school district and um, many of my peers and I faced bullying or other issues. We didn't feel like we had adults or we didn't know who we could turn to. We had counselors, but they were guidance counselors who were supposed to put us in classes, not, they weren't mental health professionals. So I was curious from your perspective as students, what more do you think the school district, your schools, the legislature even, because there's some bills going through right now relating to mental health resources, but what would you like to see at your schools that would support you, support your peers, support the underclassmen who will be um, coming up in the school system in the next couple of years um, with regards to supporting students' mental health and emotional well-being. Thank you. Okay, only one of you can answer, so choose a spokesman. I want to see more connections with outside organizations because I know it's hard as a school to tackle things. And near our school, we have an organization it's for mental health services. And we do have students that go over there, but it's a matter of the teachers and the school reaching out and having the paperwork available. Because you do have to set up things with the counselors and all the address information and all of that and have it signed already. But it's a matter of letting students that there are outside organizations that will work with the school. Great, thanks. Okay, a couple more questions. Okay, my question is for the students as well. Thank you for your perspective that you've shared with us today. Um, it's also regarding the mental health question. Um, my, my question is, are you guys aware of at your schools what services specifically offered and who you can go to for various, if it's a drugs, if it's a violence, if it's a mental health, if it's a homelessness, all that stuff. Are you guys at your school 
is that information being given out to the students so the students know what the schools can handle, what they're capable of, and also among you guys and the other students, do you feel like, do you feel comfortable going to the people that have been told you they can help you in these kinds of situations? Is there a level of trust there with the people that are supposed to be handling that? All right, so yes, I know a lot of options at school. Um, if you want to like report any type of like incident, like drugs, you know, violence or anything like that, there is always the dean's office. There's anybody on campus, um, whether, whether it comes to like mental health and stuff. Um, the closest people, I think, is our counselors because a lot of them, well, a lot of kids go to these counselors and they, you know, talk about their problems with them and say, what can I do, what about this? And as counselors, yes, they're there to, um, you know, work with the grades and work with your transcript and stuff and which classes you can go in, but they can also talk to you because if, we're being honest, it's a human-to-human -human conversation and a counselor, knowing you and knowing your whole academic experience, they can also take, you know, your outside resources and, like, help you with that type of thing. Okay, last question. Hi, my name is Felicia Ortiz. I'm a member of the State Board of Education, so I consider you all my babies. Um, so I wanted to kind of piggyback on a question that came up in the last panel about the lack of diversity on the administrative teacher side, but you guys are getting to experience what equates to some pretty phenomenal diversity in your classrooms with your fellow students. How has that impacted your educational um, career? It's huge, um, you know, being able to be in a class full of, you know, different you know, ethnicities and stuff like that. I'm able to learn so much. Uh, I'm able to just take things that I would have never thought possible um, and expand on it. Just, that's, like I said, it was one of my favorite parts of the connections, you know, being able to be with someone that doesn't look like you, that doesn't think like you, and getting to kind of pick their brains a little bit is the best part of high school. Um, and building those strong connections with them and, and being the best student you can be because of them. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's amazing. There's, uh, classrooms are as diverse as they ever have been, uh, at least from what I've seen. And it, we're just able to get so much new information from different people like us. And Felicia, just to answer your question, we did extend invites to some, a, a little bit more diverse panel. Um, not everyone can make it, so it sort of ended up being what it was for the teachers and administrators. But I think it goes back to the problem that everyone always talks about, which is how to create a more diverse workforce at the level. Uh, and, and I have to say, and this will be, we can conclude on this note, I could not be happier with, uh, with, with both panels. Uh, these are three remarkable uh, students with bright futures in front of them. And it, is, it has become a cliche to talk about how parents are not involved in their kids' educations. And uh, you two are, are, are both also remarkable parents. Thank you so much. For, for, for coming and thanks to all of you for, for, for coming this is just the beginning uh, of what we at the Indy hope to do with with education and other issues in this community we want to reach out to the community hear from uh, uh, voices that are not often heard from uh, but both both in in, in, in schools and, and elsewhere because uh, that that is the only way I think you're going to get the people who make the policies uh, to listen. So thanks to all of you uh, for, for coming today. We really appreciate it.